the important skill with journaling your mental health is you have to be as honest as possible with yourself on the page even if it means afterwards you throw that page into the bin or you burn it and I think from that is where my podcast comes from when I speak into the microphone I never hold back specifically on anything I would perceive to be a weakness or a vulnerability I suppose it's trying to eradicate the shame around anxiety or around mental health it's okay to not know stuff It's okay to let people know I am ignorant around this issue, but I'll tell you what I think. And even if I'm wrong, that's okay. Because you don't hear a lot of that, you see. Yeah. One of the most uncomfortable things to listen to, I always find, is when a person doesn't know what they're talking about, but they pretend they do know. And we can all sense it. It makes us all really uncomfortable. So you don't hear a lot where people go, I'm ignorant on this issue. It's okay to correct me, but I'm going to let you know what I think and you can disagree if you like. That is musician, author, satirist and legendary podcaster, Blind Boy. And this is episode 322 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Aisha Ginsberg and this is episode 322 of the show. And my guest today is Blind Boy. You can find him on Twitter at Rubber Bandits. And uh, you can also find him on YouTube there. That sound, which you can probably... Let me go and stand out of the skylight so you can get a bit of a crack of it. That's rain. Just in case you forgot what it sounds like. Bloody hell, that's nice. I thought, should I wait for the rain to pass? Like, no way. I'm going to record this. I'm going to record the sound of the rain. Good goodness. Goodness me. It's one of those days where the the rain predictor app that we have was getting confused by another bushfire out west. So it kept saying, there's rain coming. No, you look at the satellite image and there's this awful kind of triangular plume of smoke heading west spreading out over the city Um, but that's no news to you but goodness I hope this rain is hitting where that fire was holy shit anyway um, if this is your first podcast g'day you may want to go back a few eps and and try to listen to a few and get 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 a handle on on what's going on here Uh, but this show basically just tries to make today a bit better than yesterday that's really all i'm trying to do one podcast at a time one idea at a time one conversation at a time just something you hear today will hopefully help you make today a little bit better than it was yesterday and um i know you're going to put the work in because that's the only reason anything ever happens i do like to try i've started to try and have an idea to put out into the world that might make today a bit better than yesterday for more people than just me because otherwise I'm just spouting negative energy. So today's idea is one I borrowed from another culture but I know it works because it was incredible and I missed the hell out of it when it was gone. It's pretty much one of the only things I miss about America. Turn left on a red light. That's it. If there's a red light, you treat it as a turn left anytime. You would be amazed how much more traffic flows when that's the situation. It's extraordinary. It was like that in uh, all of California and because you could turn right on red there because you're on the other side of the road. But left on a red light, man, you just treat it as a stop sign then. It's incredible. It changes how the traffic moves. Uh, I hope we'd be trusted 
as a society to be able to do that. There's a lot to be said for trusting people to look after themselves and trusting people to do the right thing because if you constantly expect a child to do horribly and misbehave all the time, then they've got no space in which to grow and prove you wrong. Lockout laws is an example. Uh, so uh, I reckon we could get away with it. There might be a few bingles, but I think we'd be all right. Anyway, that's my idea this week. It's been great to see where you're listening to the show. I love seeing where you listen. That's not a selfie. It's a podsy. It's a taking a photo of what you're looking at right now. Send Osher email at gmail.com is the best place to do it. You can send it to my Instagram, but Haley, who looks after my Instagram, will just delete it. Email that email address. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Great to see. This one's a cracker. Ian's writing from Lake Lafroy, which is a salt lake and a gold mine out in WA. I'm currently servicing a scientific instrument which collects data on aerosol optical thickness, dust and smoke, for correcting satellite imagery. The flies are bad, and yes, that's a carrot in my hand, thanks to the podcast. Now, Ian is standing on a patch of red dirt in a fenced-off area by some extraordinarily technical-looking stuff and he's head to toe in high vis and Ian, it looks baking hot. I can only imagine next to a salt lake in the middle of Western Australia, it's not gonna be cool, but holy shit, that looks hot and the sun is right overhead. But my goodness, what a fantastic picture and what an honor to be listened to out there with you on that day, Ian. I hope you're having a cracking day. Uh, Another beauty came in from Emmett Thanks for creating an incredible audio knowledge base. Oh, thanks, Emmett. I listen to any opportunity, either at work or sitting in a park, eating too many donuts. I started keeping a list of dot porn ideas I've heard throughout your podcast that I've found to have been penny drop moments or things that have indeed made today better than yesterday. I'm going to need a bigger notebook. Truly the best. That really is my... um, my favourite movie quote. I steal it from Jaws all the time and I used it with Yumi the other day on Dad Pod. We're going to need a bigger blender. Um, yeah. And uh, the subject of the email is something I absolutely love, Emmett. Sending this email terrifies me, so I'm just going to do it. Fuck yeah. Push into it, Emmett. Push away. Push into that fear. If we back away from fear, all we end up doing is living our lives in the head of a pin. And a great pick of him just like watching the world go by in Melbourne, watching trams go under railway lines. A lot of transport going on there. And um, another cracker came in from Kari, who's listening in Toronto, Thank you so much. Um, A colleague from Australia recommended your podcast a few months ago. I've been an avid listener ever since. Well, thank you so much. That really is the very best thing you can do for this show is just tell someone that you know to listen to it. That's really it. That's the very best thing. I mean, you could subscribe, you can rate, and you can review the show as well. I'll read a review in a sec, but just telling someone else about the show is a thing that really, really does help because that increases the amount of people that listen. But reviews really, really help because when people are booking guests and they're looking to his podcast to go on, they generally look at reviews and they look at the iTunes charts because that's the metric. This one came in from Jeannie, I believe it is. A beautiful podcast, greatly needed in these times. I love the guests having listening, just having listened to Gabby Bernstein, Osha's openness and willingness to see things from all sides as a wonderful reminder of something most of us need to practice. Um, thanks heaps so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. To check in with you as the, as the rain falls around us. Gee, that's nice. Um, thanks indeed for all the, all the feedback I've got about the Gabby Bernstein episode. Hang on, one of my dogs is escaping. You know, you're not supposed to be out there. We're trying on you. I've got to walk my dog. So I'm walking around with my microphone. Get back in there. You know, we're trying a new protocol with the dogs and giving them a... uh, uh, Back in there, giving a little space they're supposed to be in and just they stay in that space. Good girl. 
and um, it's actually working because then they go, okay, this is my spot. All I have to control is this spot, not have to worry about every possum or dog or gate creek or kid that walks past because we moved house and they're just kind of freaking out a bit about all the noise. Sorry, where was I? Oh, yeah, Gary Bernstein episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for everybody that wrote in and um, also told me that they'd started in on the two-minute rule. If you don't know what the hell I'm talking about with a two-minute rule, go back and listen. There was a couple of Fridays ago I talked about dealing with overwhelm and overwhelming feelings and when everything's getting a bit much. And one of the things I talked about was the two-minute rule. And that's a part of that. So um, thanks heaps for letting me know that's working for you. It's great. I wanted to share something that I learned this week. Sometimes I get a look on my face that Audrey, my wife, sees. She's extraordinarily perceptive. I get a look on my face that my wife sees and she asks me, what's wrong? Because something's flashed across my face. Now, with, and I talked to my therapist about this, one, with my particular brain, my particular set of experiences and my particular history of trauma, there is a, somewhat of a disconnect between what I see in the world around me, what I feel inside me, and what my outward body language and my facial expressions tell the people around me, all right? If you're normal and healthy and everything like that, all those things are fairly in tune, but I'm out of whack. So I can feel okay, but my face will tell you something different. For example, I might be having a great time at a party, having a chat with someone, but if you look at me across the room, I think I'm just having a nice conversation with someone, but if you look at me from across the room, I'm, I'm standing in a corner with a trucker hat pulled down over my eyes with my arms folded, looking at the floor while I speak to that person. All right, now that makes me a confusing person to be around because when Audrey asks me what's up or are you okay I say nothing or yeah I'm fine everything's fine which is incongruent with what she sees but I'm answering honestly because I don't feel anything weird as far as I'm aware in that moment I'm okay I'm fine but she sees something else so this week I kind of learned a bit of a pattern interrupt there like what else can I do to figure that part out so when she says are you okay or you know what's up I say I don't know let me check just accepting the fact that I might be showing something deeper that I'm not aware of, that there's a disconnect within my body that's displaying something something I'm not around or don't know about. And then I'm going to dig a little and I ask myself, okay, what is happening? What is it about this situation that might be causing me to stand this way or talk to the floor for the previous example? I'm not hiding anything usually. I, I, generally, I genuinely have a disconnect between my body and my emotions sometimes, which is a bit weird, but that's what I got. So... This last few days, I just started to dig a little, all right? And I say, oh, I don't know, let me check, which straight away it validates that Audrey has seen something. Hopefully, it doesn't confuse her, like you're not crazy, like you have seen something going on, seen something flash across my face, because she's then acknowledged for seeing something out of sorts, something she's checking to see if it needs some care, like, shit, are you, are you all right? Then I try and dig a little, I breathe a bit, I feel my body, and the answer can start to come, like, oh, right, I'm in a room full of strangers and I have an old story in my head about what it means when people look at me and also what it means if people don't look at me. Now take a breath, mate. Feel your feet in your socks, in your shoes. Breathe out. Wiggle your toes. Now, what was this interesting person saying to me? And I try and get back in there. That's the short version, all right? And that's a, a, a version in the moment. You don't have to do it in the moment. You can do it the next day when you write it down. So I'd invite you this week, if you're feeling a bit off or if something doesn't feel right inside, if someone asks you, are you okay, before you automatically answer, yeah, or I'm fine, just use that opportunity to check. Like, is there a disconnect? 
Is there an old pattern of thinking that's dictating how you're acting in this situation, a pattern from years ago or from even a previous relationship that's got no business in this situation or in this relationship? The go-to for me, now I don't have to look very far because I'm pretty repetitive. The go-to hits for me are who is it in this situation that I am making my father and then seeking their approval? And the other one is what echoes from my former worthlessness are showing up and eroding the situation where I have actual worth, value, and agency. And then there's the big one, which is, do I feel caught out? Do I feel less than because I'm in the wrong or I've made a mistake? Am I defending myself by dominating another, but from a place of ego or pride? I'm a pretty shallow bowl when it comes to this kind of thing, I'm afraid. So I'd invite you to look out for those similar patterns in your own self and check to see if you're running from an old operating system when you find an icky feeling or somebody notices something. Okay, so I need to pay the bills and keep the lights on. So you are either about to hear an ad or you are going to hear me tell you about Blind Boy. So here we go. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you just heard an ad, thank you very much for helping me pay Andy, my audio producer, and Rachel, my show producer. If you didn't hear an ad, well, that's an odd time warp, and now you're 30 seconds into the future. You're further ahead than anyone else that heard the ad, so have fun out there. Either way, thank you. So let me tell you about Blind Boy. Blind Boy is a musician, TV producer, satirist, author, and podcasting legend from Limerick in Ireland. He's one half of the band Rubber Bandits, and you can find him on Twitter at rubber bandits and uh, see their brilliant youtube page which will give you some ideas of what they're about he's written two books the gospel according to blind boy and blind boy boat club two incredible tomes of of short stories that are as equally absurdist and scathing in their satire as they are creative and profound and and visceral and Im- just embedding into the into the tales that he's weaving he's an extraordinary storyteller now, as you know, I adore podcasting 
I was a fan for years before I started my own. I've been doing it for years. And, and like you, I have my favorite podcasts that I check every week. However, the, the last few months since I discovered Blind Boy um, via Russell Brand, uh, if you wanted to listen to another episode that he was on, every time I got a chance to listen to a podcast, I'm pretty much purely just devouring the Blind Boy podcast. If you've never listened to his show, just start from the beginning. That's all I'll say. How do I describe the Blind Boy podcast? Well, in the words of my Irish mate, Joe, who I, I said, hey, Joe, I've got Blind Boy on the show. He goes, Blind Boy? He's got brains coming out of his ears, but in an Irish accent. It's an extraordinarily intelligent podcast where each week Blind Boy points his curiosity at the world and through a lens of critical theory, just dives into all kinds of topics, all kinds of issues, but all with a central focus on mental health, self-awareness, and trying to recreate who you are free of the patterns of the past. Blind Boy is very open about his own struggles and his own regime of recovery, which led him to dive into studying psychology at uni for some time before his band had a breakout hit and his academic career took a bit of a backseat. But it doesn't mean he doesn't just absolutely devour information about what he's talking about. And because he does that, when he talks about cognitive behavioral therapy, transactional analysis, or indeed Freudian archetypes, he's not talking out of his ass. He has got, he's legit. He is 100% legit. Having said that, his episode on transactional analysis was just so devastatingly crisp and powerful. In one hour, it explained more to me than hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars of therapy ever taught me. And it's super helpful. But it's not just about mental health, history, art, politics, religion, music. Oh, so much music. He did a two-part podcast on the history of disco that just has to be heard. Changed how I listen to disco completely. To have him on this show is a true honour, and I hope that this taste of what Blind Boy has to offer gives you an opening to what he's doing, and that you add his show to your weekly listen. Now, just a note up top, if you've seen the artwork for this episode, or you have already had a look at him online, you'll see that Blind Boy wears a plastic bag on his head, with eye holes, and nose holes, and a mouth hole. And he, he speaks when he speaks from behind a shopping bag mask, or in the case that he did today, uh, someone crocheted him a replica mask out of wool so he can do podcasts because he puts it on, apparently, when he does his podcast to get in character. He does it because when the TV show Big Brother first debuted in the UK, he was just kind of horrified at the level of fame that those people achieved, but the little reward that they got in return, uh, that they kind of lost their life. They couldn't just catch a bus anymore. So he became Blind Boy, and behind his mask, he's able to speak extraordinary truth that someone who had a career would never, ever, could never, ever say. He does use some fruity language, I'll tell you that up front. So perhaps this one's one you'll maybe listen to when the kids aren't in the car. Blind Boy is touring Australia, coast to coast this week. He's pretty much sold out everywhere, but if you do get a chance to go, good Lord, enjoy the night. Enjoy this chat that I had over Skype from Limerick in Ireland with Blind Boy. Where do we find you today, Blind Boy? Today, I'm just in my studio. I'm in my studio talking to an Australian man on the phone. <laughs> Your studio is located geographically where? In, in Limerick in Ireland. I have kind of a nice studio now. I started off just in a bedroom. Well, it's still a bedroom, but 
I have like a, a podcast listener. I did a podcast complaining about the fidelity of my podcast <laughs> and someone who was listening to it happened to be someone who makes studios. Yes. So they contacted me and they came to what was a room and they did like this crazy... I thought they were I thought they were nuts. When they came, I actually thought they were a bit crazy because they sat at my desk with a mirror and I was going, what the fuck is he doing with this mirror? But what he was doing was he was looking at the mirror and he was able to judge by the mirror exactly where the sound of my voice would, would hit off a wall and then he placed foam panels exactly uh, based on, on where he looked in the mirror and, and it perfected the sound of my room. It's incredible. A, that's incredible that you had a stranger in your home who brought a mirror. Uh, it sounds like yeah. the, the start of a brilliant drug binge from my old days. That's it. I- uh, <laughs> Before I got sober, um, but uh, B, you know that when you go into a hotel, when you go into certain hotels, <laughs> and you look, you look around the fucking room, and you just go, "Nah, that mirror does not have a functional purpose." Yeah. Mirrors in hotel rooms only mean debauchery. <laughs> they never mean put your clothes on and see how you look. It's either strategically placed beside the bed for sex. Or it's clearly just a mirror for doing cocaine. Particularly if it's removable. Easily removable. That's the one. Man, I was in a hotel in London and this huge mirror was beside the bed on the wall. And then when I went to to touch the mirror, it pulled out like it was a picnic table. No. And it's like, yeah, they weren't even pretending. It was just like, watch yourself fucking or masturbating in the mirror, then pull it up and do your coke (laughs) with your companion. Or ketamine, depending, whatever the fuck. That is just, holy moly, there's not even hiding it. I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I, I kind of, narcos show. And, and the thing is, yeah? the thing is, they're so, they're clever enough to do that. <laughs> yes, they didn't predict that putting 2014 iPhone chargers into all the hotel rooms was a bad idea. Like, do you ever notice that? Yeah. I, like, I go into a hotel room and you, you go to the wall and they've installed the charger for a, a long, long obsolete iPhone. <laughs> and it just breaks my heart. It's just like, that is so much money. And, and you can do nothing. You can do nothing with it. And somewhere there's an iPhone charger salesman sitting on a boat off the coast of Mallorca going, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, I sold 10,000 to Best Western. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of money. You're in Limerick in Ireland. I'll have done a big intro before we, we get to you. But, you know, I've, I've been listening to your show for quite some time. And what's wild is, A, you sound just like my friend Joe that I play poker with. Um, is he that, Irish? Uh, very. And yeah. <laughs> his wife's name is Neve, And it's not fucking spelt that way. But uh, N-I-A-M-H. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. She's lovely. And, you know, obviously I've lived a long time in, in, in Sydney, in the eastern parts of Sydney, uh, in a place called Bondo Beach. So there's many. Um, oh, there's loads of Irish in Bondo, yeah. Dude, it's on. You know, and I know you've come to our country quite a bit, but for, for people who are kind of just brand new and going, who's this guy talking about cocaine mirrors in London hotel rooms? I'd like to kind of draw a picture for a bit of like where where it is exactly that you stand when you talk about the things that you talk about because I do find that quite, quite, quite fascinating. When I said to Joe, oh, you know, I'm getting blind boy on the show, he's like, oh, he's from Stab City. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you give us a clue? It's like why do people call – I don't know, it's a long story, but you grew up in a town – 
referred to as Stab City. You've, you've gone into on your show, you've gone into why it was called that, and we won't need to go into that, but it sounds like it's a, yeah. it's a pretty fucking sometimes, uh, I guess it's like what people might think Compton would be if they listen to a lot of hip hop. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a rough spot. So I'm from Limerick City and the first thing, to, the obvious thing is that it, it's one of these places that it has a reputation, but that reputation is not realistic. Uh-huh. You guys probably have it in, in, I mean, what have you got in Australia? You have bogans and stuff. Is that what you call them? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, there's parts of every city that you don't go to. There's yeah. parts of, you know, parts of my city where I grew up that I didn't go to. So there, there's everywhere always has a place that becomes the kind of the butt of jokes in the way that, you know, everyone says people in New Zealand fuck sheep. <laughs> like, I doubt people are actually fucking sheep in New Zealand. But it oh, yeah. just sticks. It sticks. And when something sticks, it doesn't leave. And the thing is with Limerick, where I'm from, I've never seen someone get stabbed. I've never been stabbed. I mean, it's a, a working class city. It It's the economically kind of disadvantaged place. We had a pretty bad gang war like 15 years ago. That was about the height of it. But ultimately what you're dealing with is it, it's a city that doesn't have a huge amount of opportunity compared to the rest of Ireland. And there's stereotypes. And the stereotypes around it is that the people are uh, violent and lower class. And when people say Stab City, like your buddy there, Joe, who said Stab City... I know that Joe means no badness by that because that's just, he's having crack. He's having a bit of fun. But the thing is, is I don't like the phrase Stab City because it actually has a real impact on the ground because you meet tourists and tourists are genuinely terrified of being shot or being stabbed and no threat exists. Yeah. Because when these rumours start to spread, um, it, it gets out of hand, you know? I mean, I, I, and it goes all around the world. Like I, I had a buddy on the podcast before and he said he was in Jamaica in Kingston in one of the roughest parts of Kingston and they were scared of Limerick. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it, it has a reputation, but uh, as someone who's from Limerick, their reputation is completely massively unfair. Limerick's a lovely, safe place. There's not a huge amount of money here, but the people are fantastic. That's what we go on. We've got a lot of culture. Yeah. We've got a very friendly people and... I, I choose to live here. I love it. I absolutely love it here. Mm. And one of the one of the advantages of having a bad reputation as well is that, it, you know, it's cheap to live, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> I think it's interesting that there's that parallel around the world of, you know, that's the part of the city that you just don't go to, whether it be, like I said before, you know, whether it be Compton or, you know, parts of Orange County where I used to live in Los Angeles or here in Sydney, there's parts of Western Sydney that, you know, a white guy like me just doesn't walk around, apparently. Yeah. But then my wife grew up in those that place, you know, in, in Western Sydney. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know. And it's it's kind yeah. of interesting that there's that kind of, and I know you talk about this a lot on your show, there's that, that othering that we do as a nation to other nations. And then there's that othering we do in our own community of like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, at least I'm not from that space. Exactly. And it's a thing that humans do. And I don't really know why it is. I can never get to the bottom to understand it, but... It's it's an othering. It's it's as you said. You need an other to be the butt of jokes. But the problem is, is that when the jokes happen more and more and more, it actually does have an impact. Yeah. We we have a university in Limerick, like a, a world class university, and it's a little bit outside the city. But there's students in that university who who never go into the city because their parents told them it's not safe, uh-huh. and that's just not true. But the thing is, then the city itself doesn't benefit from the 
commerce that a university should bring. So for myself, like I'm not even from one of the roughest parts of Limerick City. I'm from an okay kind of quiet place, but I still suffered the... uh, like if I go to Dublin or outside of Limerick or if I go to Australia, people still say to me, Stab City, mm-hmm. or they'll call me uh, a skanger or a scumbag, which is the Irish equivalent of, of Bogan, I suppose. Yeah. And it's one of the things, so on my podcast, I speak about history, philosophy, mental health, I'll deconstruct art. And because I'm from Limerick and I have a Limerick accent, I think it actually works in my favour because the thing is is that people are expecting me to be violent or to be... To, people are expecting me to live up to their stereotype of what a Limerick person is. Yeah. And when they hear me talk about the paintings of Caravaggio or yeah. something like that, it, it subverts their expectations and that little subversion can be quite good at grabbing people's attention. I concur entirely in that you you're able to kind of hold the door open a little bit longer for yeah. mo- most people who would otherwise go and they flick onto the next thing because their attention spans are that of a gnat right now. Ah, sure. The thing is, that's only the case in Ireland. But when it comes to Britain, mm. the people in Britain don't care if I'm from Limerick or Dublin. As far as the British people are concerned, we're all paddies. Uh-huh. And a paddy to a British person is, is a stereotype of a drunken, stupid, lazy person. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if I'm from Dublin or Limerick, when a British person hears me, they now have in their mind what they think I'm going to be. He's going mm-hmm. to be a drunk, idiotic man. So when I then speak about something which they consider to be knowledge which should belong to the British upper class, if I speak that way, <laughs> speak in an educated fashion, that subverts their expectation and all of a sudden I now have their attention. Mate, I love it. I think it's an extraordinarily effective thing that you're doing. Um, and I'm really grateful that you do spend the time and take the effort to do it because it's. Uh, I think it's a really valuable thing to, to have out there. I was just thinking, I know we'll talk about this later on, but part of my, you know, kind of daily workout for my mental health is I, I write mm-hmm. in, in the morning over a cup of coffee. And one of the things was um, I got these fucking mad pair of cans. They're like made by the company 3M who make everything but their industrial strength noise suppression, mm-hmm. like I could operate a jackhammer with these things on. <laughs> the noise cancelling ones. No, 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 not noise cancelling. They're like negative 29 dB. You know, they're like the sort of thing you would wear on a job site for hearing protection. Okay, okay, okay. yeah. And wh- why do you wear that? To block out all sound? Yeah, and they have Bluetooth. So okay, as someone who... I was diagnosed with social anxiety in 2005 and, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm quite an introverted person sometimes, even though I have a very public job. You know, sometimes I just don't want to engage with people. Oh, so you wear these things when other people are present? Mate, I go shopping with these things on. It's fucking wow. amazing because they're these giant fucking things that say, yeah, I don't want to talk to anybody today. Oh, so it's not necessarily about the sound. You're sending a visual signal. True. That, wow, Okay. I also have quite significant hearing damage from my years in the music industry. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Because I couldn't wear those because all I'd hear was, would be my tinnitus. Yeah. My, uh, this is the loudest thing I can hear in any situation. Um, so I, I pump podcasts through them. And as I as I work in the yard and I listen to, 
you know, because I knew we were coming up to this, so I was trying to catch up as best I could because <laughs> I'm I'm somewhat behind, but I'm getting I'm, I'm yeah. get, getting up to there's a there's a gap. There's like there's a, a couple of recent months, and then there's quite a cavern in the middle, <laughs> and then then you know, I'm I'm still back in time a bit. On uh, I think there's about a four or five month gap as I'm catching up to the present day in your show. But as I walk around listening to your voice talking about the things you talk about, it's, there's something about it. It's like, a, oh, he's a calm, sane, rational person. They're speaking in an accent from a country I don't know very well. I've been there twice. And yet, oh, they're speaking about smart things. And, oh, I feel all right because the world isn't just all fucking chaos. And I wrote that down this morning and that how much I'm just grateful that you do the work you do because for me, uh, someone who's dealt with some pretty significant mental health issues in my past, hearing that there's another person, just one other person in the world that has somewhat of a balanced, reasonable, rational, maybe I don't know everything view is like, oh, thank fuck. (laughs) So I'm grateful that you take the time to do it, man. Thank you very much. I mean, for me... I mean, all I try and do when I'm doing my podcast is to be as honest as, as I possibly can. I, I don't bring into my awareness that there's even an audience sometimes. For me, it's almost like a, an honest reflection and catharsis, except into a microphone. And for me, that tradition comes from, like, obviously, as you know, from listening to my podcast, I've got, I deal with uh, social anxiety, mental health issues, depression as well. And journaling, writing down as honestly, like, I I get asked a lot of the time, people say to me, I'm suffering from anxiety, I'm suffering from depression, but the pain is so great that I don't even know how to say it to another human being, right? Mm. People are at this state of, of where they are in their mental health journey, whereby they just can't find the language to say it to another person. And I always say to them, if you're at that stage, write it down. And the important skill with journaling your mental health is you have to be as honest as possible with yourself on the page. Even if it means afterwards you throw that page into the bin or you burn it. And I think from that is where my podcast comes from. When I speak into the microphone, I never hold back uh, specifically on anything I would perceive to be a weakness or a vulnerability. I suppose it's trying to eradicate the shame around anxiety or around mental health or around, like you said there, it's okay to not know stuff. It's Mm. okay to let people know. I I am ignorant around this issue, but I'll tell you what I think and even if I'm wrong, that's okay. Because you don't hear a lot of that, you see. Yeah. One of the most uncomfortable things to listen to, I always find, is when a person doesn't know what they're talking about, but they pretend they do know and we can all sense it. It makes us all really uncomfortable. So you don't hear a lot where people go, I'm ignorant on this issue. It's okay to correct me, but I'm going to let you know what I think and you can disagree if you like. It's an extraordinary skill to have. It takes a battle with one's own ego as well, I think. And that's probably the most insurmountable thing is that you're not only dealing with another person's perceived judgment of yourself, but also dealing with your own ego who's trying to protect you going, no, 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 you're cool, you know everything. Exactly. And I actually, that skill, I developed that skill. I actually, I trained to be a psychotherapist for a couple of years, you know. Mm. Now, I never finished my training because my career took off as, as a musician. Before I was a podcaster, I was a musician with a band called The Rubber Bandits. But when I was training to be a psychotherapist, 
you had to strip away all ego and also there's a technique used within psychotherapy if you are the therapist and you're speaking with a client and what it's known as is appropriate self-disclosure and what this is is if a therapist is trying to help a client with their anxiety or with their depression if the therapist can appropriately disclose a situation where they themselves were were experiencing depression or experiencing anxiety. If the therapist can say, this is how I felt, by showing that you're comfortable speaking about your vulnerability, it allows the client to then open up and Mm. be more, to feel not judged. Mm. So... I think when I speak about mental health on my podcast, I think that's the most important thing. I let people know, you know, when I was getting anxiety attacks in a shopping centre or something like that, or in a pub, that I, I felt in that moment that I was going to die or I felt in that moment that I was going to vomit on everybody and become uh, the subject of attention. These are the thoughts during an anxiety attack or a panic attack that we keep as very intimate things and we're very frightened to let anyone else know in case they judge us. So I just come straight out and go, this is how I felt. Mm. But it took me 10 years to get to the point where I'm okay saying that, you know? I had to do a lot of work. Was there a stigma uh, attached to disclosing? Well, see, it, it... Things are getting better now with the mental health conversation. They're certainly better. Like you said, you, you told me there that you were diagnosed with social anxiety in 2005, mm-hmm. which would have been around a similar time frame to myself. And in 2005, people weren't talking about mental health on the radio or the TV. People weren't really opening up. It was a specialist subject. And when I first told my friends, 15, how long ago was 2005? It's 15 years ago. Yeah, wow. When I yeah. first told, I know, fucking hell. When I first told my friends, <laughs> It makes people deeply uncomfortable because I tell you what it's similar to. When a person cries in front of us, we often want to reach for a tissue for that person, okay? But the thing is with reaching for a tissue to when a person cries, we're not doing it to help them. We're actually doing it because their tears are making us uncomfortable. So the tissue is a distraction. It's not an act of compassion for the other person. It's, I'm going to, fidget around in my pocket now and I'm going to give you a tissue and you're going to stop because those tears are bringing me to a place of myself that I'm not ready to go to. So when I would say to my friends, I got a panic attack, I got an anxiety attack, I have depression at the moment, I'm suicidal. It was too big back then for them to say, I'm listening. Instead, what I got was their body language would become visibly uncomfortable and it, it, I could see in their heads, they were saying, what, why are you telling me this? This is too much. And in Ireland, what happens is we we have a phrase in Ireland called the crack, C-R-A-I-C, and mm-hmm. it's Gaelic for fun. So Irish culture is very similar to Australian culture. So Irish male culture, we use the crack, the fun, as a way to kind of get by. But it's also an unhelpful bandage in situations when someone exposes or expresses male vulnerability or weakness. So Irish men will use the crack, as in they'll punch you in the arm, they'll call you gay, they'll slag your, or or they'll make fun of your mother, but they'll do this, it's the verbal equivalent of taking out tissues. It's, you've just said something there that 
expose the weakness. This has made me feel weak and vulnerable too. So now I'm going to turn everything into humour to avoid this situation as, as quickly as possible. So that's what I would have been met with. I, I do yeah. think things are changing now because the mental health conversation is much larger than it was in 2005. Mm. It's super important and, and you're exactly right. You know, I, it's that phrase, you can't be what you can't see. And certainly that's the feedback that I'm, I've found. And I don't know if this is the same when you do live podcasts, but certainly when I do live shows, is that when you do disclose in front of other people and you do make it okay to disclose, after the show someone will come up to me and, and then disclose to me. And um, yeah. it might be the first time that person's ever said you know, that thing that happened yeah. with, them, with them and their uncle or whatever, you know, and yeah. I get exactly what you're saying. And um, But I'm just wondering when it comes to the response that you've had for being so authentic on your podcast, why is it that we now, do you feel, why is it that we just yearn for that authenticity in the things that we see and hear? Well, just before I answer that question, there's just one thing I want to... So as you mentioned there, you were saying when, when you disclose at a live podcast and yeah. afterwards someone will approach you and mm-hmm. they will disclose to you. One thing I should mention is I wear a plastic bag on my head, mm-hmm. okay? Blind Boy wears a plastic bag on his head. I've worn a plastic bag on my head for, Jesus, since 2006. And the reason I do this is to preserve my identity. Basically, I, I live in Limerick. Limerick is a small city. There's not a lot of people in Limerick who are well known. So I like to go to shopping centres and I like to live my life, mm. but without, like I'm, I'm, I'm functionally in Ireland, I'm functionally famous, all right? I've got like a, a million followers on social media. So it's enough for me to get stopped on the street if I'm walking around Limerick City but no one knows who I am because Mm. I wear a plastic bag on my head now the reason that's important in terms of what I'm trying to do with mental health is when you go up on stage and you do your podcast and you disclose and you have people speaking to you they know who you are so Mm -hmm. they can find you and they can come and speak to you but the thing is like when someone comes to you with some shit like that, you have to give them your full attention because Absolutely. they're disclosing and it's really fucking important. Yep. But at the same time, for Usher, you have, and my Irish accent sounds like I'm calling you Usher. It's all right. I keep thinking of the fucking mid-2000s R&B star. It's all right. We can go to Atlanta. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you have a limited amount, we all do, have a limited amount of, of uh, emotional energy that we can give people. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, because I have my plastic bag, it allows me to speak about mental health. I can keep going and I don't have to really be concerned about, like if I do a podcast about anxiety, depression, about growing up around abuse, and then I walk the streets of Limerick, I know like... 70,000 people in Limerick alone are listening to that podcast so that means for me to walk the streets I would be stopped by a lot of people and I'd have a lot of people with me listening to them and I would burn out so that Mm. means I would then have to stop speaking about mental health as much as I do so the bag actually protects me a little bit because you know what I'm talking about it's absolutely 100% to be compassionate and to listen to someone is draining. It's an act of compassion, but it's also emotionally draining 
to in, in therapy it's called burnout like a psychotherapist yeah. has to listen to maybe three people a day and that therapist is legally obliged to have a counsellor of their own to make sure that they're emotionally available for their clients so I know other people in Ireland who are in the mental health sphere and they have to back away from it because they're trying to have a pint on a night out and someone opens up to them about abuse or mm. about depression something they've never told anyone else so the bag, I think, allows me to actually be more effective. Yeah. Because I don't have to worry about those boundaries. I get it. 100%, 100% get it. And I've talked about it on this show before, and I, I talked about the steps that I took afterwards because, you know, as, as you mentioned, a psychotherapist might have three people disclose some heinous shit to them yeah. in, you know, a day after a gig, I'd, you know, wonderfully be signing books and whatever and, you know, there'd be 60, 80 people in the line of that 60, 80 people you know, maybe 20% would say some heavy shit, 10% would say some stuff yeah. that made us both cry. And then I go yeah. home at night and I'm awake till four in the morning because the adrenaline yeah. is just firing. And, and, I, and I had to take some steps around that and I, I was able to manage it. But I, I look, I, I, I totally... And the thing is, you yeah. never want to be in a, in a position where you stop listening. Because you could save a life. That could be the first time I've ever said it. Exactly. You know, and so you, you have to treat it with that respect. You can't just go, I can't talk about the fact that you haven't left the house in three months except for this gig. I can't talk about that right now. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. You yeah. can't say that shit. You don't. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because <laughs> for that person, they've disclosed and now they've been rejected. And what yeah. that can do is it can confirm a yeah. faulty belief that they have about society and the world. Yeah, pre and pre that's precisely. Why, so for me... I'm thankful that I don't yeah. have to, because what, what, what it would mean is I'd probably have to, I'd have to step back a bit. Because yeah. friends of mine who are in the public eye who speak about mental health, they've had to step back a bit. Yeah. Ireland is small. We're very talkative with each other. If you go out for a pint at night time, you'd have a lot of people. I'm fortunate in that people don't know who I am. A few people who know me know who I am, but I just get to live the, a, a normal life, which is what I've always wanted, you know. A mate of mine once said to me, it's like, the thing about you, Osher, is you'll never get to see a room before you walk into it. Yeah. You, though, are one of the very few people in the world. There you fucking have, go. You know, you are one of the very few people in the world who get to see the room before and after you walk into it because you can. Yes. Do you, is there a made up name that you like to use as a pseudonym? I was going to call you Kevin, which isn't your real name. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can call me Michael Fassbender. Okay, um, when you when you're no, Michael no, Fassbender, but like, uh, no, uh, uh, let's just say my name is Dudley. Okay, so yeah, when you walk into a room as Dudley and you see yeah. the room as Dudley, and you go, okay, great, and I'm just going to slip backstage and pop the Aldi bag on, and then you come out, and people are fucking, ah, it's blind boy. Yeah, you know? yeah. I try and explain that to people, but again, it's hard to explain to people. I can explain it to you because you yeah. understand. Yeah. The thing is, so I, I'm in the unique position. Like sometimes for fun, I'll queue up for my own gigs. Amazing. As Dudley, <laughs> I, I, I'll just, you know, I, I've been on bus journeys that are four hours long, sitting beside people who are reading my book. I've been wow. sitting beside people who are listening to my podcast. Fuck yeah. And they don't know who I am. And I tell you, what, the thing, Asher, is... So when I walk into a room as Dudley... Yeah. And I meet people, I'm just a regular person. And in order for me to 
attain the respect of a person, I have to put in the work. I have to be nice mm. to them. I have to be compassionate. I have to earn that respect. When that bag goes on and I walk in as blind boy, I don't have to fucking do that. I'm blind boy now. And people look at me differently. People look at me. Their eyes are open. And what what they're actually looking at is... Because I'm on television and stuff, what people see is a spectacle. They see this thing that they're used to looking at in two dimensions, a cartoon essentially, is now in flesh, in 3D, in the room. And our culture has led us to kind of, to valorise stuff that's on a screen. So when I have that bag on and I'm in a room, people look at me as if I'm some type of a deity or a curiosity or something strange and all eyes are on me. And then I leave the room and I come back out as Dudley again with no bag and now no one's looking at me. And I'm able to see the dichotomy between those two things. And... I'm thankful that my everyday fucking life doesn't mean people turning their heads and going, is that that guy? Because I don't think I'd have the mental resilience to be able to cope with it. I think it would be, personally, I think it'd be very challenging for my self-esteem. A low trucker hat and some 3M workmates. Uh. <laughs> is that, so that's what you do. You have, to, you have to dress like a fucking Aegis. But that is incredible. Have you ever... I'm fascinated, like, because... I was thinking about this the other day in that we've got two kids. One's nearly 16 and one's just turned 16 weeks. So we, we took a flight fucking the other day. hell. Dude, it's on. It's fucking wow. amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. George is amazing, my, my eldest. She's just the most extraordinary, powerful young woman. She's taller than me. I met her when she was 10. And uh, she's watching her become and, you know, and just kind of power up and just hit these bonus coins and just become this, you know, oh, I can do this now and just become yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. As she becomes and, and, and starts to unlock the secrets and secret codes of adulthood and, and, and it's fucking amazing to witness. And at the same time, watching this young baby just suddenly go no longer just reactively closing his fist when something touches it but now reaching for things you're like what yeah. fucking had to happen in your brain for that to holy shit you know that's it's yeah. it's extraordinary like he's yeah anyway but the other day we were taking a flight it's just been you know the christmas holidays here in australia and we flew up to queensland and with a baby when you're on a plane it's the triple a pass mate you know, okay, everybody good. would like to come on board the plane first if you've got some time come up now and we'll make sure you get on the plane all right past the line, everyone's waiting. Yeah. We've got, I've got the baby in the carrier, like, they're all with me. We're bringing everybody on the plane. We take all the overhead space we want. We sit down, fuck it. And then everyone files on and, you know, then you know, the downside is you've got everyone's crotches at your shoulder level, but that's fine, all right? So yeah. I was thinking about this the <laughs> other day and that I've been in the public eye now for 21 years, uh, more, 20, I started in radio in 94, but on television since 99, so 21 years. Wow. So you've forgotten what it's like for people to not know who you are. Well, I spent a fair bit of time living in Los Angeles because I kind of ran away. Ah. And I kind of hid so I could go and do my groceries, you know. Because, you know, fucking uh, (laughs) Russell Brand is a a buddy of mine. He's a friend of mine. But So he won't mind me saying this story, but Russell Brand... When he, he, so when he was in, in the UK and he was a presenter in the UK and he was huge in the UK, he was really, really famous, but nobody knew him in America yet. He went to Los Angeles and Russell is someone who really needs to be recognized. He needs fame. He, he, he'll acknowledge that. Uh-huh. So he went to fucking Los Angeles 
was standing around and he could not deal with the fact that nobody knew who he was. He couldn't right. handle it. So he had to go to Santa Monica where all the English people live oh. just so people would know who the fuck he was. <sighs> oh, and that's his, but that's his personality. Yeah. Some people are, are highly extroverted and need it. Other people are introverted and don't need it. Yeah. But go on, what were you saying? What were you saying? Well, you, 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 was what saying was it like going to Los Angeles? I guess what I'm trying to work back to is that my face is the AAA pass. You know, you thought it was the baby, but it was your face. No, 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 no. Like, just it's similarly like when I'm just out by myself. That oh, okay. hard, that hard work that you say you have to do when you meet people. That yeah, that work of you know truly finding a connection with someone before they'll open up and trust you uh, to actually have a conversation with a stranger takes work. It takes effort. Yes. It takes yes. commitment. It takes the willing it's, to be it's vulnerable a, and a barrier of trust. The open, being open to being rejected yeah. by this human being. Yeah. And because my face has been in people's televisions, I mean, I did Australian Idol, which was, I'm the ant or deck, whichever one you want. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, I did that for seven years and then we've done this show, these bachelor shows for nearly, it's our eighth year of doing them. You know, my face has been on, in the corner of your living room for nearly 20 something years. So I'm kind of like, at the very least, it'll be like, did I go to school with you? Oh shit, so some people are like, Oh fuck! I don't know who this dude is, but I recognise him. So they don't yeah. know you're the dude from TV. They think you're from their past. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I don't I'm, have to I'm, deal with that because I have a bag right. in my head. So when right. people see me with the bag on, they definitely know yeah. it's me. But I've had loads of situations as well, Asher, where I could be out in a pub, I could be any social situation, and sometimes people are just fucking rude. Sometimes you meet someone and they're standoffish and they're not pleasant and they're not nice. I've been in that situation lots and then someone says to them, do you know who he is? And then they completely change and and that pisses me off. Right. So I was going to ask about that because that is interesting. What is it? Is it that that they just want to be near celebrity or be associated with celebrity? What is it, do you think? No, like I said, they'd meet me as Dudley. And I'm just a dude. I'm just some some fella, and I have to put the effort in to win this person's affection and approval. But s- some people, you know, they might just not like you, or some people are assholes. Let's be honest. Mm. There's some people who are just simply I don't like saying are assholes. Some people behave like assholes frequently as part of their personality, and they have their own shit going on that that leads to that. But I have been in situations, social situations, where someone's not being nice to me, someone's being rude to me and then I get up and leave and then one of their friends says to them, do you realise that Dudley is blind boy and then that person changes their whole tune and they're back over with friendship uh-huh. and that that makes me feel, it, it, that's not a nice feeling. No. It's not a nice feeling because it means that they've, they've flipped in their entire uh, approach to me simply because they heard something about my job. So mm. I, I don't like that. That's not pleasant. And, and it, yeah. it, it makes me feel sad for people, for humans. One of the things that I'm frequently astonished by when I listen to you is the level of political awareness that you had when you were just a, so young, a sperm, as you often refer to yourself as. One of the very early shows you played back an interview of you, I think you said you were 16 or 17 on the radio. Did I play that back? Yeah, you were talking about... Oh, um, fuck, I'd forgotten I'd put that in. Because recently yeah. I was going, I must put that into a podcast now because ah, I'm 118 episodes it. in. So obviously yeah, yeah. I did it already and fucking forgot. Sorry, mate. But you're like a 16-year-old who's been doing yeah. prank phone calls and then flags quite early on in our social media journey on a page long gone now called Bebo, but a page oh, that yeah. uh, had you know flagged up and said... 
now we're putting profile views up, essentially likes on a Facebook page or likes on an Instagram Was page. Was Bebo big in Australia? Oh, not really. No. Not really, okay. It was mostly MySpace when we got here. But when I hear you talk as a 16-year-old, the level of political knowledge and theory that you're quoting as a teenager, I'm like, the fuck? Who is this person? You know, I, I didn't know any about this shit until, oh, God, I was in my kind of 30s when I, you know, started having to really face the realities of the world outside my own country when I moved to America. Where did this political awareness come from? I'm, a, you know, I'm guessing that you grew up with someone who was very, very politically aware, if not active. Yes. I don't come from a lot of money. I don't have kind of economic privilege. I never had to experience poverty, but I do come from a lot of, um, what would you call it, educational privilege. The, the, the huge privilege I had growing up was I had a, an older family. Like my youngest brother is like 14 years older than me. Kind of like the situation that you have with your new kid and then your other yeah. kid is 16. I was that baby, except there was six of us. So I grew up in a house of adults and every one of these adults each had their own separate interests that they were passionate about. So the politics mainly would come from my father. My father, he was a communist uh, union organiser who, I, I mean, from four years of age, if Ronald Reagan was on television, my dad would say to me, see that Ronald Reagan dude and you see the way he looks like the good guy. Well, he's actually not the good guy because this is what he's doing in South America. And I was continually made aware of to question things in the media, to understand, we'll say, Marxist theory. From my dad, I was always encouraged to think this way and this was kind of rewarded. So it got me thinking politically, it got me thinking academically and almost every member of my family, I can credit them with, a, with a, a different facet of my personality. I mean, when I was finished talking politics with my dad, I had another brother who was obsessed with music. I had another brother who was obsessed with uh, art. I had a brother who was obsessed with science. So I was hugely, hugely privileged as a child to have grown up in this non-stop intellectually stimulating environment where not only was I, I lucky enough to listen to people talking about things that they're passionate about, but for me to receive praise when I kind of spoke up with my own opinions, you know, because that's important. I, 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 Whatever feedback we receive as children, whatever we're told by the adults around us as that's a good thing, that tends to shape our personalities as adults. So it kind of makes sense. My personality today, I, I can really trace it back. The confidence that I have to be able to learn about things and speak about things and to feel okay to be wrong about things. It all comes from my childhood and, and the privilege I had in, in that respect. Holy shit. Blind boy, parent-teach note must have been fucking intense. <laughs> it, it would have been, but I, again, like, I, I grew up with that stupid fucking Irish Catholic shit, you know? Uh, and my dad would have been, I, I won't say he was an atheist. No, my dad was spiritual. He believed in a God, but he would have been very much anti-Catholic and... I'd have been in school in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. So th the Irish Catholic Church still had power. It was the end of their power, but they still had power. Man, I remember I was seven years of fucking age. And 
one of the dudes in the class, we had a free class. That's when the teacher's not present and all the students are there on, your, on their own. And we, we were seven. We were like seven years of age. And one of, one of the dudes in the class, who was a friend of mine, he got it into his head that he wanted to stick his dick in a girl's ear for fun. Now, we're seven years of age, you know. So he went and did this. He took his willy out and he put it in a girl's ear and everyone laughed. It wasn't like a mean thing. It wasn't bullying, but it was inappropriate for seven-year-olds, you know. So then I think the little girl told or someone else told a teacher, but our teacher was a nun. So what happened was the nun came in and the nun scolded us. But what the nun did was, so we were seven years of age. So when you're raised a Catholic, Catholicism was was forced upon me with baptism. If I did, well, if I wasn't baptised a Catholic, I wouldn't have been allowed into a school in Ireland. That's why we're all Catholic, even though we don't want to be. But the nun went and got three jam jars. Do you have jam in Australia? We do. Yeah. So the nun got three jam jars and she filled them with clean water. And she said, blind boy, the other lad and another lad who was involved, she said, these are your souls and this is clean water. Because of what you've done this in this class with that girl, she got dirt out of a flower pot and put the dirt into the jars and said, here are your dirty black souls. Here are your dirty souls and you're going to go to hell with your dirty souls. And the thing is, we were due to have our first confession like a month later, which is a religious thing. Very fucked up. You essentially walk into an upright coffin with a stranger and tell him your secrets. Yeah. Like you got to go and confess your sins to a priest at seven years of age. When you're seven, you don't have fucking sins. Seven-year-olds don't have sins. I, we, most of us had to make them up. But they denied me my first confession. They said that uh, we weren't ready to have first confession because of what we'd done. And they let us stew with our dirty souls for like six months until we could have confession. Now, that was very traumatic for me. I was lucky to go home to a house where I had parents who were saying to me, that nun's a, a stupid bitch and souls aren't real and all of this stuff. But whatever about me, here's the big crime. This is what they fucking missed. And this is what I now realise as an adult. For me, it was an unpleasant experience. My friend who took his dick out and put it into the girl's ear, okay? He came from a much more disadvantaged background than me. I remember, like, we'd be six years of age and his fucking uncle used to come up in a van and hand him a backpack and make him walk to another side of town with the backpack. And I never, I never questioned what that was. But the thing is, I know from psychology, if a seven-year-old child is doing anything with their penis and putting it places, that means mm. that that seven-year-old child is learning it from somebody or may... Yep. Is either in contact with another child who's being abused or has been abused themselves. The nuns didn't fucking see that. The nuns instead chose to speak about his soul instead of ringing social services or ringing, ringing somebody who, who cares and saying... I have a child in my class of seven years of age who wanted to put his penis in a girl's ear. Why does he know about putting his penis in things? Yeah. That seven-year-old is now, uh, he's doing life in prison for murder. Fucking hell. And he had a bad life and he was failed. Every part of his life, he was failed by the system and failed by everything. And I just always remember thinking back there was your opportunity to intervene as to what, whatever he was experiencing at home. Yeah. So that was like, that was my childhood in school. <sighs> only, only last year, man, 
yeah, have we made it a situation in Ireland where you don't have to be baptised in order to get into a school? We've only brought that in last year. But I grew up with a Catholic education, so Catholic morality was, was a huge part of my life. So my parents had a difficult job in trying to stop me being indoctrinated with that shit. From my perspective, I feel that it's good that they gave it a shot. A lot of parents would have gone, fuck yeah, eight hours, I don't have to look after them. Yeah. I can just Well, they ca- had that as well. On. I mean, look, it was a house yeah. of six people. They were happy that yeah. I was away in school. But yeah. they made sure and said to me, did anyone indoctrinate you today? <laughs> I had to do religion classes, man. I had to do them. I had to learn about And it used to make me angry. yeah. I did the same thing, and it's only in listening to your show that I've come to understand that the people who founded my school, the, the Christian Brothers, had come from... Oh, yeah, Christian yeah. Brothers, that's all I need to hear. Yeah, uh, and so exactly, you know, similarly, I think from about 11 that I was like, hang on, this isn't right. Yeah. If this thing that I'm doing to my own penis in the privacy of my own room feels so fucking amazing... Oh, they were going masturbation on you, were they? How is it the wrong thing? And if I am in God's image, are you here to tell me that God doesn't do this? Are you fucking kidding me? This is the greatest thing in the world. I received sex education from priests. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And every Irish person listening to this podcast will go, yeah, so did I. And they wouldn't even say masturbation because it was too shameful for them. So what they were okay with talking about was wet dreams. But they told us, they said that when we had a wet dream, it meant that we slept with the devil in our sleep. (laughs) Ah, fuck me. Instead of Jesus telling us not to get people pregnant or telling That's... us about condoms. They couldn't speak about condoms. They yeah. couldn't do it. It was fucking insanity. All that, you know, pleasure is important. Consent is important. Women enjoy and want this just as much as men do. And it's, it's not dirty. It's not awful. Like the amount of undoing that I had to then go and do around sexuality uh, is as an adult was fucking bananas. All that work, all that fucking work. Do you know what I mean? Unnecessary Ugh. work in relearning things that you just should know by being a human yeah. being, you know? It, it's heartbreaking. It really bloody is. It really, really, really is. When you talk on your show, and you, I know you've spoken a bit about, we talk about indoctrination and, and your parents were saying, did you get indoctrinated today? And the kind of one source of indoctrination they were worried about essentially was school. You know, now, and it's, you know, all of us every single day, the indoctrination that we're getting is through our phones. It's through what we're looking at. It's through the news feeds that are so open to manipulation. Case in point here in our country at the moment, we're undergoing probably the the opening batsman for climate change has decided yes. to crack a fucking century here in Australia yeah. and throw down with the longest, most intense bushfire season that has ever, 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 ever happened. And yet online there are bots and trolls and all kinds of things throwing misinformation at people and people then see this on the exact same device that they see truth from their friends and family on and they believe it is true and then how you know we don't have Dudley's mum and dad to jump between you know to debrief at the end of the day you know we don't have that um we're just kind of an open mouth to the sewer of, um, if we're not careful, we're open mouth to this sewer of of falsity, which triggers everything that makes us want to, you know, fear and worry yeah. and jump and, and react. How do we keep the indoctrination from the door in this modern age, do you think? Well, with that specific situation you're speaking about there, 
ultimately that so if I was to say who who's ultimately responsible for this who's ultimately responsible for it are the massive corporations that benefit from our data okay I did research recently for a TV show I was doing on BBC and also for my podcast into how did we get to this situation where because I remember the internet 10 years ago it was not as emotionally charged as it was right now conspiracy theorists existed racists existed but they were in their own little quiet corner and it was quite easy to say this person is not reliable they're a crackpot now that's not the case anymore What's happened is, there was a psychologist in the 1950s called B.F. Skinner. And Skinner is the father of behavioural psychology. And B.F. Skinner did a study where he had a, a rat in a cage. And what he did with this rat was, the rat was in this cage. And if the rat pressed a button on the cage, the rat was rewarded with a pellet of food. But similarly, if the rat pressed the button in a, in a different way, the, the rat was punished with an electric shock. And what Skinner learned is that Skinner could change the behaviour of the rat depending on whether he rewarded the rat with a shock or with food, that he could completely change how this rat behaves, thinks and responds. Wasn't there a light that went on before the shock? Yeah. Or something? A, a, yeah. A light went, yeah, that was it. A light went on before the shock and the, the yeah. rat learned to spot the light. So data companies since the 19, late 80s, and when I say data company, I mean Google, Facebook, Twitter, all the big, big companies. But what Skinner discovered was a thing known as operant conditioning, that you can control the operant, the operator can condition the behaviour of the subject. So big data companies, basically, we're like the rat in a cage, except we're not physically in a cage. Our phone is the cage. Our phone is the Skinner box. And what big data has done is, so nothing is free on the internet. The Facebook app, the Twitter app, the Google app, we don't pay for these things. They're free on the app store. But what you're actually giving away is your data. Your data is... You know, why does your phone, like Google Maps, your, your data is everywhere you walk during the day. Your phone wants to know if you went to McDonald's today so it can sell that information to McDonald's. Your phone wants to know how often you text. Your phone wants to know what you're texting about. Are you mentioning any brand names? So literally, our phone is like, it's like we as humans are now in a laboratory. Like if you have a Fitbit as well. It's like you're in a laboratory 24 hours a day where a huge team of scientists are measuring every single aspect of your physical behaviour and your thoughts and they're measuring and recording this data. That's why Facebook is free on the App Store because what Facebook are doing is all this data of your behaviour that our team of scientists have looked at all day, that's really useful for us because we can sell this to advertisers who can take this data and then more accurately sell products to you. But the thing is, the longer you engage with your phone, the more data Facebook, Google, Twitter, whoever can have. So what they have done is they have, based upon the findings of BF Skinner and operant conditioning, they will game the algorithm to feed us only information where we respond with the most extreme emotions. They will feed us information that makes us respond with fear and anger. And that's what's happened. So that's why Twitter is stressful, Facebook is stressful. The algorithm rewards any information, whether that be a news article 
or a troll account that's using certain trigger words such as climate change isn't real, they're gaming it all. Google make money from climate change denial. They're not funding climate change denial, but so long as you have climate change, like to deny climate change, I have to step back from it. It makes me want to punch someone into the face because I can see the science. I know climate change is real. So when I have someone who looks like a normal human being telling me that it's not real, I get really, really angry and I want to tell that person to fuck off or I want to engage them in a debate to change their minds. But we're all now locked into this system where our belief system has been completely polarised. From this you get the alt-right. From this you get, I don't like using the radical left, but you get people online who are very, very left-wing in a way I haven't seen 10 years ago on the internet. And you have ultimate polarisation of our online lives that have us in a continual sense of our emotions being driven to 100 and who benefits from it? The fucking data companies. So if we want to stop this, we need greater rights and protection for our data. That's the only way. It's a system. It's all well and good going after the alt-right. It's all well and good going after climate change deniers. But if you remove the system where they flourish, then it goes back to 2006, where they're just a bunch of sad cunts on their message board talking to each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's the system. And we made some steps, some kind of half positive steps towards it in Europe. We have a thing called GDPR, which is... It gives us some protection and rights over our data, but we need more. The world needs more. Data is the new money. Data is the most important commodity in the world today. That's why these companies are the richest companies in the world. What's the quote? If you're not paying for it, you are the product. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the fucking, and I'm not going conspiracy theory on this, but world governments are involved in it. I did a podcast recently and you can look this up. I proved that Pokemon Go was funded by the CIA. Fucking hell. You know from listening to my podcast, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. If I come across something and the evidence is shaky, I'll be honest about it. The CIA have a company called InQtel, which is a public company, and it's where a huge amount of the US budget goes into. And InQtel is a company that funds startups. Google was funded by InQtel. Pokemon Go, one of the biggest apps in the world, was directly funded by InQtel, and it's a way to fucking mine data if the US government the CIA want to find out about a street in South Korea they no longer have to send a CIA agent there they just make a rare Pokemon appear and every single resident comes out and maps the entire area with their phone and InQtel who funded it received the data and that's the same thing you trace Google Maps Google Maps you can trace that back to a company in the late 90s that was a CIA company and it was a way to gather data, to gather intelligence. So it's a huge deal. <laughs> and I know I sound crazy. Yeah. I, know I, I know I sound crazy, but you can, go, you can Google that. No, I, I get it. I, I'm a DuckDuckGo man myself. What's DuckDuckGo? Is that, is that, a, is that an, an app? Oh, it's a search engine that uh, doesn't ah. then... Yeah, because here in our country, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but here in our country... So does that protect your data a little bit? Trying to, yeah, trying to. I yeah. use different browsers and I use DuckDuckGo because in our country, it's perfectly legal for... I think it's even warrantless. You can go and check my metadata and see. Yeah. And you, you, don't, you don't need much. My location and what I'm searching for will pretty much tell you fucking everything about my life and um, what I'm doing and what I'm up to. Yeah. And I'd rather... I'd ra- I'd rather 
rather that yeah, some bored you have person a right who, to not have it out there. I yeah, mean, I'd rather some bored person who knows my name doesn't want to find out. Why is he googling herpes? You know, I don't want to fucking. I don't. Want but that the, do you know the next thing they're coming for? Well, they're not even. They're already doing it. And again, this isn't conspiracy. They're, this is proven, and anyone can look it up. And it's reputable online. It's just it's not being reported. Do you know DNA companies like Twenty Three and Me and Heritage.com? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. So a DNA test should cost $1,000, right? An individual DNA test should cost $1,000. That's how much it actually costs the company. Yes, if you actually go to 23andMe or Heritage.com or whoever, it'll cost you $100. So you're left wondering, why are they giving me $900 for free? Well, what's actually happening is when you do one of these tests, you sign away your genetic data. Fuck. And 23andMe did a $300 million deal with GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical company, where basically they have access to every single person's genetic data for the future of medicine. Now, there could be positives with it, but also they want to sell it to insurance companies. Now an insurance company will know whether or not, they'll know if you're going to get Parkinson's. And then they'll deny you insurance. So our genetic data is the latest thing and it's all in the small print and it's happening now. It's terrifying. It's so hard to talk about this shit without sounding like Alex Jones, isn't it? No, it's, it's I right. Just, I, get, I get embarrassed talking about it because I sound like a fucking... Anything I said, you can Google it. I promise you, it's not conspiracy no, theory. No, I, I get it, and I get it. And if you don't know who Alex Jones is, don't find out. Life's no. so much better. <laughs> yeah. Life's so much better living in a world where you don't know who that guy or his followers are. That's a whole fucking... Yeah, know, yeah, fuck that. YouTube and Alex Jones is... No, nah, forget it. But yeah, as humans, I feel that we need to get more more comfortable as we spoke about mental health earlier we need to get more comfortable with the aspect that you know we've just kind of trusted growing up in uh, particularly you and I we grew up in western societies right yeah we're and you know capitalist and ne- mostly neoliberal economies we just kind of trust that these companies and corporations we know they do bad things but generally my life's pretty fucking great my my infant mortality rate in my community is really yeah. low I've got clean water you know but stone fruits on my shelves year fucking round life's pretty great I just kind of trust that generally they're benevolent. You know, everything's pretty fucking good. Generally, they're because because in our daily life we don't really experience hardship as such. No, no. So we're just—it's uncomfortable to consider that. Hang on, this company that I've trusted my genetic data with, or my location data with, or my metadata of what I'm searching for with, might be selling that to someone else, and that may, uh, will, be used in some awful way against me or my family uh, or limit my opportunities for me and my family at some point. Yeah, all it takes is a fascist government. You know, I mean, in China at the moment, they have a situation where they have a social credit system, which means uh, all the data on a person's phone is available to the government. It's a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, it's it's, it's like Black Mirror. So they reward people. If you go to the off-license or the bottle shop, as you call it, in, in Australia, Yeah. If you go to the bottle shop three times a week in Australia, your phone knows you've gone to the bottle shop. So therefore, your phone knows that you might drink a little bit too much. The government is told. And now when you want your washing machine fixed, you're last on the queue. Yeah. Do you know, little things like that. The governments already have our data. They're just not doing that with it. But all it takes is a, is a fascist government for that to happen. The system exists. They just need to flick the switch. But again... What's annoying me, Asher, it's not even necessarily that. It's uh, the real shit we're dealing with right now is in order for them to get this much data, they need to have us at a continuous state of heightened emotion. That's what I don't like. 
that's yeah. a driver for the huge amount of anxiety and depression and unhappiness that we're seeing. And and you asked a question earlier and I didn't get to answer it, which was, you were asking basically, why do I think people listen to my podcast? I think the reason people listen to not my podcast, but any podcast, I believe that listening to a podcast is the only little bit of meditative freedom that we as people get in the daytime where you're not engaging with your timeline. When you go onto Facebook or Twitter, it's a stressful experience. You're bombarded with opinions you don't like and news that's terrifying. But when we put a podcast in, if it's sufficiently engaging, it takes you into a very calm, contemplative place where, like what a good book will do, where you've actually got a bit of space in your day. You're calm, you're listening to another human's voice and you don't want to take out Facebook. You don't want to find out what your friend is doing. You're not worried about how many likes your Instagram is getting. That's what podcasts do and I think that's why podcasts are exploding right now because it doesn't make sense. It's like podcast is just a shitter version of the radio. Why are they so popular? You know, it's that. It's it's space. People are getting meditative space. I call it the podcast hug. Yes. Yeah, I would also argue that there's a sense of connection because you. it's in a very intimate form of broadcasting. Yeah. I haven't been involved in a lot of broadcasting. This totem, this device, this thing that is never more than three metres from my body, all right? This little phone that all my family, friends, everyone I love is in this thing and I communicate to them. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about public recognition and anonymity, I always knew that I was doing my job well when people would call out my name. Like in the streets, in the streets? Yeah, there's an undescribable signature in the way that person called my name that they know me. And, oh, that's someone who obviously knows me by the way they've spoken to me and I turn around and I'm like... Oh, right. You know me from... Oh, so I'm doing my job right. Do you, do you find that more with your podcast than with your broadcasting work? Uh, the TV stuff is shout across the street. The podcast is uh, ah. come up to me, shake my hand, look me in the eye and say something, you know. Because there's not a lot of intimacy to presenting. True. And yeah. so, but it always means I'm doing my job right. If someone feels that they can talk to me as a friend, yeah. then I am on telly, I am being authentically me. And that's what's most important. It means that when you're on telly, you're a guest in their living room. That's precisely true. And you're a welcome yeah. guest. So that, that, that's what true, that's, true, true. Uh, from a, in a psychological yeah. space, that's what that says to me. And I find that podcasting is such an intimate form of broadcasting because similarly, the podcasters I listen to, but they're my friends. They're my friends I have chats with in the car when I'm driving from place to place. Yeah. They're the people I go to the gym with. Yeah. You know, me and the boys from the dollop, we, we've done heaps of workouts together, you know. Um, yeah, I yeah, pretend yeah. that Joe Rogan's my friend when I'm lifting kettlebells. Uh, you help me clean the yard. It, it's a very intimate, intimate form of broadcasting. And I think having worked in commercial radio where if you don't get that fucking, if you're not at, yeah. you know, getting a laugh or a spike every 15 to 20 seconds. It's like a comedy gig, mate, that you've, you know, you obviously- Oh, man, it's tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you write comedy, you're like, if I'm not getting a chuckle every eight seconds and a big laugh every 30, my show's going to fucking fail. And you've got to write, it's so hard in Breakfast Radio to get that done. Breakfast presenters who I know, like, I mean, the the commissioners come in and told them that they they have to be standing when they're presenting because people can hear when they're sitting down. I I disagree with it strongly, man. Like, I've broadcasting experience. I work in TV 10 years. I think- 
think the people who have designed breakfast radio around the world, I think they're money people and they're not creative people. Like, I understand breakfast radio needs to be very hectic and it needs to be... No, no, no. I understand that people in the mornings feel they need to be woken up, okay? Yeah, but yeah. the idea that to wake them up, you must shout at them and scream, I disagree with it. If you look at successful public speakers... People who are, and this is actually one that my dad used to tell me from his days in giving chats at unions, when he would give talks at a a union or something like that, you're dealing with a lot of angry people. And a good public speaker understands that if the audience is angry and shouting and the emotion is high, you don't get their attention by being louder than them, you get their attention by whispering. And I think breakfast radio should be a whisper, it should be a contemplative whisper that treats people intelligently and treats them with compassion like a podcast does screaming every fucking 16 seconds about a band uh, you know music you don't give a shit about or talking about fucking traffic like a dickhead I don't think people actually engage with it I think it makes people angry and anxious and I'm guessing look you know yourself You, if you did breakfast radio you've got a phone there and people are texting in yeah mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to text in some angry shit that wouldn't happen when you when you when you be doing a podcast I, 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 someone who's... Are you working in Breakfast Radio at the moment? I walked away from it. Okay, good. So you're allowed to talk shit about it. Good, okay. I think I talked shit about it when I was on it too, don't worry. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's broken, it's broken, man. As a format, it is broken. It broke my heart that I wasn't able to make it work because it was a dream that I had when I was in my 20s. Yeah. But I think doing the podcast for so long, I think I was at about 200 episodes when I started back on Breakfast Radio. I did a few summer jobs, but doing the podcast for so long, I was just so yearning for that deeper, longer connection that I get out of a podcast that my PD was just like, mate, you've got three minutes. I need Uh. to come out of this Katy Perry song and into that Justin Bieber song. (laughs) There's three other people in the room. Fucking get to the point, man. I need it. I need what you want to talk about within one sentence. I don't need you to set up about the like the long colluded history of the Christian brothers as to why that then for you know <laughs> makes you you know get to it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> People yeah. People are in their cars, mate. They're commuting for twenty minutes average. We need to fucking bang, bang, bang. Yeah, I couldn't deal with it. But do you think, like, in your opinion? Do people actually need to be screamed at in the mornings or is is it just a a series of bad decisions that have rolled into this thing we call breakfast radio? I think it's, look, when I look at what's happening in the industry, you know, I'm I'm a, you know, we talked about data before I look at data, I look at what shares prices do. Share prices are, you know, basically a a decision-making protocol that you can see in public of like, this is what a vast amount of the community are deciding. And when you look at what certain companies are doing as far as hiring and firing goes, in our country, every major radio company has started their own podcast division, a serious podcast division. And, you know, the actual old regular broadcast stuff, vast amounts of it are pre-recorded. But because a similar pattern is happening in Ireland, to the point that I like the national broadcaster in Ireland are sending people to my gigs asking if they yeah. can use, asking if they can record with a camera my gigs to see what am I doing that I'm getting more listeners than them and I told them fuck Holy off shit. I came to you with a radio program three years ago and you wouldn't take it but do you feel that like podcasting as an art it's a different process it's supposed to be yeah. I, I always say it's jazz music you allow yeah. mistakes you allow chaos yeah. I'm rebelling against the sheen and perfection that radio wants. And instead, I'm allowing a space where shit can go wrong and there's a contract between the audience where they understand it. Do you feel that radio stations are allowing this to happen or are they simply getting a podcast and bringing 
radio language and production to it? I feel that the initial phase will be rebroadcast of existing shows and then maybe some of the off-air chat, because I, I certainly know this yeah. from my own experience, is that we recorded everything off-air as well, and that it'll be just a, a hybrid of the two, of like this is the just the breaks, no music, mm-hmm. and then here's the off-air chat as well, and then it'll move then towards that same breakfast team, then going into another room and then doing an hour of just chatting. And it's tough, you see, when money's involved, yeah. you see, one of the things that my podcast too is, I'm mainly funded by Patreon and I will take advertisers, but only when I ethically agree with them. So I'm in a position where I can turn down a lot of advertisers. But if I was to open myself up completely to advertisers, sooner or later, they're going to start telling me what to talk about. And I I feel radio is constricted by that. Radio have shareholders, they have advertisers, and all of a sudden now, the freedom of, I can say, like with my podcast... I can say whatever the fuck I want as long as I'm not hurting marginalised people, which isn't something I'd do anyway because it's not my personality. But other than that, I can say what the fuck I want. Like the British Army tried to advertise on my podcast. Uh, <laughs> do I, I know who you are? Yeah. <laughs> and it was so fucking sinister, man, because they advertised on my podcast because they knew I had a young working class male listenership in the UK and Britain. So yeah. the British Army were advertising on the podcast. I found out, I made a request to say, can the British Army not? And then for some reason it went through and through. So I just started listing out British war crimes. Anytime the British <laughs> Army fucking advert came in and they stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? That's the freedom of a podcast. Yeah. Imagine yeah. imagine doing that on the fucking radio. Fuck, the British, yeah, they, the army decide to recruit and then you read out war yeah. crimes. You couldn't, you'd be fired, you'd never work again. Yeah, I did, I did have a moment when I was doing one particular shift. They wanted me to do a live read, which is um, it's uh, it's worth more. It's like a podcast ad, basically, but it's mm-hmm. not like the pre-recorded with the jingles and the bells and whistles. It's a, hey, have you tried? And they wanted yeah. me to read out a thing for um, uh, Sydney Discount Meat Market, which is a, a butcher. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> do they know I've been vegan since 2002? Oh, for fuck's sake. And I just say to them, listen- what you put in your mouth is completely up to you, but as a client, they're not getting value for money having me read their copy, all right? Just, yeah. just letting you know, all right? I'll read it, but then everyone listen like, hang on, he hasn't fucking eaten meat in nearly 20 years. Maybe I shouldn't believe this guy. And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, good point. I just spun it back around. I was like, as a client, they're not getting value for money by yeah. having me read it for them. So, yeah, that was, that was pretty. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
funny. I did. I did want to ask. You know. You know. We're talking about about podcasting. We're talking about breakfast radio, uh, but then we're talking about the you know the incredible profit made by companies whose their profit. F- just fountain of money comes from keeping us in this constant state of agitation and fear and I've got to yeah. click on the next thing because I'm now afraid of a thing I didn't know about and, oh, fuck, how do I fix this? You know, you talk a lot about having commissioned uh, for both RTE and the BBC and as someone who's also worked, I, I work in, you know, terrestrial broadcasting, there's that many kind of laws and bylaws and ethical boundaries that I have to commit to around anything to do with that kind of broadcasting. And you would have no doubt within your writing yeah. for that larger broadcast audience have had to adhere to those things. Um, things like particularly if you're live, you know, there's a delay on a, on a live broadcast. Yeah. Now that we're seeing in Australia, it's terrifying, Blonde Boy, more people get their news from the internet than anywhere else, which is now f- yeah. frightful because the fourth estate is losing not all control. power. It's terrifying. Do you see at all a, a time when the same regulation that broadcast outlets and, and newspaper outlets have to abide by would be applied to these media uh, online media companies. I do, but I I, I kind of I hope not. I mean, it, it, I tell you something that I saw quite useful recently, and I thought it was a, it was a step forward in the right direction. I clicked on a video, and it was a video by Russia Today, which are a, a, a Russian. <laughs> left-wing news channel but when I clicked it was on YouTube when I looked at the video there was a banner underneath and it said Russia Today is is fully funded by the Russian government and I found that that was helpful now I would have liked to have seen when it was fucking CNN with a list of all the corporate donors do you know what I mean on on these things but I, I'd like to see it but not with television it's it's incredibly restrictive in, in Ireland we have uh, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and Sometimes it's unhelpful. In particular, they get a boner about the word balance, okay? Mm-hmm. And balance can sometimes be unhelpful. So in Ireland, for instance, it's not just Ireland, this is around the world. You have a, a political talk show, we'll say. And if you have a guest on who might be a person of colour or someone who's trans or someone who's, who's, who's gay and they want to speak about their experience... Oftentimes, in the interest of balance, the broadcaster then has to bring on somebody who disagrees. And in those situations, they're platforming a homophobe, a racist, a transphobe in order to do this thing. And it's really unhelpful. And what I do like about the Internet is like on my podcast, I don't have to have balance. I let people know it's my opinion, but I don't have to platform people with different opinions to me. And look, I've no problem with people with different opinions, but when that opinion means I want a person to have less human rights, then I'm not fucking platforming that person. I don't want to, because that for me isn't an argument. It's like you want a person to have less human rights. And that's what it boils down to when it comes to transphobia, racism, things like that. So that's Mm. a problem. I would like, I mean, fake news has got to go. Fake news hmm. has got to fucking go. It is very dangerous. We've seen what it's done. It's unfair. The big problem, like I said, is that data companies, Google, Facebook, all the big boys, they really, really make money from this. When someone is sharing fucking K 
chemtrails, climate change denial, fucking immigration is a, is a plot by lizards. When people are sharing hmm. that shit, there's people arguing and it's data, it's engagement, it's data. These companies don't care as long as engagement is happening. So I, I do, I, I'd like to see that type of stuff shut down. It's, it's frightening and it's harmful and it's heartbreaking and I'm sure you're the, you're, you're the same. When you see a friend of yours oh. slowly, slowly become indoctrinated and all of a sudden, six months later, they're now a racist. It's heartbreaking and, yeah. it, and it's a thing. I think it's kind of new. The internet is doing it and it's tough to see. Yeah. Or when it's a relative or where, when it's your fucking grandparents or something, you know? Yeah. It's very, it's, it's, it is interesting in that we have this, um, and I, it's not my line, I think it's, it's Joe Rogan's line in that we drove cars in America, he says, you know, we drove cars at 70 miles an hour with no seatbelts and people just fucking died left yeah. and right. All right. Seatbelts didn't become mandatory until the 70s in Australia. Yeah. 70 miles an hour, was at about 130, 120. It's fucking fast with no seatbelt. You'd never fucking do it now. But that's where we are right now. We're in the no seatbelts. But, you know, time. It's, it's cigarettes as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ. My parents remember a time when doctors would recommend cigarettes because they thought that <laughs> when the cigarette made you cough, it meant you got all the stuff out of your lungs. So oh, good Lord. we're in a big yeah. experimental stage. Yeah. We need to look at the mental health ramifications of it. We, we're all addicted to social media. Getting likes is a very pleasurable experience. And we've been conditioned to, when, when you get a like for a tweet or a like for a status or a like on Instagram our brain registers it as social approval. And mm. the internet is fun, and I love the internet. But, Jesus, some of the younger people in particular, I, I really, I don't know how they're dealing with it. You know, I see the extraordinary benefit it has of connection. And the only connection I had was a phone that you had a, had a it went, yeah, because I'm old as fuck, right? Remember having to actually meet people. Remember, if you wanted to meet your friend, you had to agree a time. And just, you'd be there. But it's, I tell you. You'd just wait. Something I saw recently, which was really interesting, Asher, was I was looking at uh, photographs of a a music festival from 1992 in Ireland, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Loads of people. So it was all these young people in the town around the music festival. And there were so many people like sitting in really awkward positions, like sitting on top of stop signs and sitting on top of phone boxes. These really unconventional, like, why the fuck would you sit on top of a phone box? And I was thinking about it. It's because there was no mobile phones. Yeah. So your friend had to sit on a phone box or had to sit on a stop sign because if there's a crowd, that was the only way you saw them or else you got lost. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Amazing. I'll tell you a very, very funny story yeah. in relation to this exact thing. So one of my brothers, my, my older brothers, he'd be, he'd be around your age. He, so he went to London in the early 90s and no mobile phones, nothing. And he had one friend who was living in London. I think the friend's name was Brian. So he'd rang Brian in London and said, look, I'm going to get the plane and I'm going to meet you in London. And the, the, what they'd agreed is that they were going to meet at a Van Morrison gig. They were both going to go to this Van Morrison gig and they would meet each other there. And that was no mobile phones, nothing. That's what they had to agree. So my brother gets to London. He gets to the Van Morrison gig but he doesn't have a ticket, so he was just going to wait outside until his friend came out. But Van Morrison was in a weird kind of stage in his career where he wasn't playing like 
brown eyed girl or any of the classics and instead what he was doing was like this weird Irish traditional music thing so oh, yeah. the concert was full and very early in the concert when my brother was waiting outside people started to leave because Van Morrison was doing Irish traditional music and not the hits so these two people came out and they saw my brother and they said to him do you want our tickets Van Morrison's just doing a bunch of Irish shit we're not interested so my brother said yeah great no problem I'll take them so he looked at the tickets and they were right up at the very front so he was thrilled so he goes into the gig sits up at the very front and the audience are hating the gig because Van Morrison is just doing Irish traditional music my brother's loving it so the gig is getting close to being near the end and then my brother figures he goes fuck my friend Brian is in the audience so I need him to see me so that I can actually sleep somewhere tonight because again no mobile phones so what my brother does he gets up in the front row and he starts dancing in a really silly fashion so that his friend would definitely see him and laugh and go there he is but as my (laughs) brother's dancing this other dude gets up beside him who he doesn't know some old dude with a beard and a hat and he starts dancing an Irish jig with him so gig finishes my brother meets his friend everything's fine he's back in his flat opens up the music newspaper the next day and there's a review of the gig and the review says very disappointing Van Morrison gig he mostly did Irish songs the only highlight of the gig was when Eric Clapton got up to dance with a man during the gig (laughs) holy shit so my brother had danced with fucking Eric Clapton while he was obviously in some weird long beard trench coat stage you know that's fucking amazing (laughs) the the 3M workmates and and trucker had of Eric Clapton yeah the beard and the trench coat yeah that's it and that's pure like he he had to do that crazy shit Uh, because there was no mobile if he didn't have a fucking that was it he was sleeping on a park bench he either had to dance at the front or park fucking bench (laughs) It just that reminded me of something that happened back when you just used to meet people, and this is completely, you know, I, I saw a, a tweet somewhere. They're going, you know, mobile phones have rendered doorbells obsolete. Yeah, uh, I'm here. Is the you know people just came outside now? Like if someone rings the doorbell now, I get fucking anxiety. I'm like, who the fuck is ringing totally. the doorbell? Precisely. You used to also just have a connection and a trust with the serendipity of the universe. All right, in that. We both said we'd be in this particular place and time, around this particular place and time. We'll probably run to, into each other. We are, yeah. and, you know, deeper than that, we're, we're mates. We know each other. We're probably interested in similar things. We will congregate around similar areas. We will know what's happening. The best version of this happened many, many, many times in my life, but the best version of this was in 1993, Guns and Fucking Roses came to Australia. They played a gig at Eastern Creek in Sydney, which is a racetrack. Yeah. I was in Brisbane at the time, couldn't afford a flight, took the 12-hour-long, 14-hour-long train. Wow. To get there. We don't have trains that are 14 hours long in Ireland. It'd be in the ocean. You've been to Australia. It's a big place, mate. Me and I think there was eight of us sitting in a crowd and another mate of ours who bought tickets separately and had come in a different way knew that we would be there. Showed up. He just knew. He just trusted the universe. He just reckoned there's guns mm. and roses and Asher is definitely there. Well, he knew we. I was Andrew at the time, but there was there. He knew we were there. He knew that we would be there and that we were. We, you know, we kind of said, "Oh, we're going to get there around this particular time." No one's got a mobile phone. It's 1993. All right, we're in a fucking hillside field above a racetrack with this massive stage. It's hot as fuck. We'd been there for about an hour and a half. Nick shows up. Hey, Nick. Hey, good day, guys. Wow. There's 90,000 people there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this happens so often in my life, I can't believe that it's just... It wasn't crazy back then, but now it's crazy. Yeah, but that he was from a... There's got to be some sort of subconscious decision-making about he's from our certain area. There's decisions he'll make when he shows up. Do I want to go this way towards those biker people or do I want to go that way towards those other people? I might go left instead of right. But you know what? You're you're probably right because the thing is, we as human beings have existed a a, a long time more without mobile phones than we have. So you're probably 100% right. There's some type of collective unconscious empathy whereby you Mm. just know how to find your friend in a crowd because from an Mm. evolutionary perspective, it could mean life or death. We're social animals. So you're probably dead right. A a, a hyper version of that, a hyper version of the similarities of of choices. Uh, Have you ever scuba dived? I know you like a mask. Have you ever scuba dived? I've never, ever scuba dived, no. Ah, it's fucking amazing. It's it's the closest I'll ever get that to being. That would scare a... the fuck out of me. I don't know about that now, mate. It's the closest I'll ever get to being a spaceman. All right, because I'm operating in a three dimensional space. So I have to rely on this equipment to breathe in this you know this environment that's incredibly hostile. The regular rules of gravity don't apply to me. It's just fucking amazing. I'll scuba dive with my wife. She's Fijian. I will go scuba diving. They get born with a scuba diving ticket over there, pretty much. I'll scuba dive with her, and I'll have complete conversations with her. Not sign language. What? I'll have complete conversations with her and we'll get up out up onto the boat afterwards and through eye contact pretty much because we both look at the same fish or the same rock or the same wow. thing and we both see the same things we we are both operating on a similar through a similar lens of looking at the world we see a lot of the same things in the same way which is why we were attracted to each other and that as someone who's got significant hearing damage I have to wear hearing aids when I haven't got headphones on that are cranked to 100 dB so I can hear you today it's you know, I've had to look at communication with other people as, you know, more than just speech, you know, and that is a perfect example of, and it's a bit of a tangent to what we were talking about, about finding someone in a crowd, but there is a similarity of decision-making. Well, I tell you, you're spot on there yeah. because one thing we, we haven't touched on, when we're, so when we're speaking about, we say social media, what is it doing to our mental health? Yeah. The other thing is a significant amount of empathy has been removed from communication because... Mm-hmm. You're just seeing words. Like, I I love using emojis because emojis can make someone see that I'm not being angry when I type this. Yeah. I'm not being anxious when emojis are quite useful in communicating things. But a big part of the internet and the amount of intensity of emotion we feel is because of the written word. People spend a lot of time arguing underneath news articles or underneath YouTube videos and so much of it is, is is reading the other person's emotion and it gets very heightened very quickly. Whereas if those two people were in a room together, I doubt it would even graduate to an argument. We wouldn't say the shit we say online. People get very hurtful very quickly online. People mm. say very nasty things and that person would never say that in, in real life. Like uh, what, one thing I always struggle with is when I see very hateful racist comments underneath articles about asylum seekers or something. Yeah. I see a comment or something horrible such as uh, send them all back into the sea and then I click on the photograph and and it's this lovely old man surrounded by his family and I'm, I'm hit with the dichotomy of this man probably loves his grandkids, this man feeds his dog, this man exists with transactions of compassion in his day but yet here he is calling for a load of refugees to be drowned in the sea. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder, is that person really that hateful or has the internet created an environment whereby 
they're just so completely removed from the reality of the situation that they're lashing out like that. Well, we, we are living in a, a very interesting time where dehumanisation has never been easier. Yeah. And the gap between those who've got stuff and those who don't have anything is is wider than ever. So it's pretty much ripe for some serious shit to go down. Like, I don't think there's ever been, you know, you can't have a really, really horrible violence against another without the dehumanising part first. And that's become just... Dehuman, yeah, that's essential. That's essential. Yeah. For it. That's the, that's how it, it needs to... Yeah. As soon as you have an other or a yeah. them or they're like yeah. this, then there you go. But I think you're right, you know. And when it does come to comment sections, I, I avoid... I, I, have a, I stay the fuck away from them now. I don't want to see them. I don't know. Don't go near it. You are getting into a fight with a jet ski, you know. <laughs> <it's>, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or in our country, we're calling them a ute. It's like there's a an angry ute from Western Queensland is upset about greenies who refuse backburning. A ute is that's like a pickup truck, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. huge Utility. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, it's like, come on, man. I think you talk about it as like blokes who started a Twitter account just to be say nasty things to footballers who yeah. missed a goal. I'm sure Trent or Gavin, or whoever the fuck it is, is a lovely guy, and we probably like the same Tarantino movie. If you were having a pint, you'd be fine. Yeah, but it's that. It's that connection that we spoke about uh, you know, earlier of like, but if you're in this lockstep, I've got to react right now because I feel horrible in my body and I've got to do something about this horrible feeling. I've got to react. What can I say? Put them all in the sea. Oh, yeah. I feel better. Thank fuck for that. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. I tell you as well, and one thing I've learned... A great way to build our happiness and self-esteem is to walk away from the temptation to say that thing on the internet. Mm-hmm. I've practiced it so much where I want to respond to a nasty comment, where I want to get into that argument on the internet. When I bring the strength up in myself to say, no, I'm going to make myself a cup of tea instead. You actually grow from it. You grow as a person. You get a little piece of confidence. Whereas when you give into it, when you give into the negative emotion and call someone a dickhead, it lowers your self-esteem. You feel worse afterwards. I wish I had that strength. I've had to take uh, the same model that I've taken towards my drinking uh, of abstinence. My wife has my screen time passcode like I'm a fucking (laughs) 12-year-old. Like I'm fucking 12 because I know, I know, like I've gotten to a point where there can be alcohol in the house and I won't touch it and that's fine. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But I'm still in the stage of like I can't install Instagram on my phone. I can't install Facebook or Twitter on my phone. I've got it all locked out. I can't even access it via so browser. So desktop Twitter, man. I check it like once a day for like five minutes at a time and the same with Instagram. I actually have, I, I, I now pay someone because a lot of podcast stuff comes through, a lot of DMs, people reach out and make contact that way and I don't want to miss podcast guests. So you got to have someone minding it, yeah. Yeah, so I have someone taking care of that. But my life, since I have taken that off my phone, since I, it was after I read the Roger McNamee book, Zucked, to be honest, about yeah. all, pretty much every Facebook product except WhatsApp is off my phone and WhatsApp's only there because I have friends who are in parts of the Middle East that don't allow signal. Yeah. So if I want to talk to them, I have to use this thing right now. And it's it's a massive problem. It was a massive problem with me because I was losing hours and hours and hours of my day. And, you know, we've just got this new baby in, in our house. And I'm like, I can't fucking be angrily writing back to someone in a comment section of an Instagram post that means yes. fuck all when my son is learning how to grab things. Yes. All right. This is something that will never happen again. And as well, you don't want your son to look up and who is only learning about the world and going, why is daddy so angry at the box? Why is he not looking at me? Yes. Yeah. And so the other day, and similarly, you know, and I talk about this moment with my mental health a bit, but like about, it was about six months after I stopped drinking, I lay in bed one night and I was like, 
oh, and I, I didn't even want a beer today. Huh. Yeah. You know, it didn't, it didn't come with the parting of a clouds and a, and a conical light from above shining upon me in a chorus of angels. It just happened. And so a couple of nights ago, and I've had Instagram off home for a couple of months now, and I was laying in the, on the bed. We were getting ready for bed, and my wife went off to have a, sh- have a shower. Baby was asleep, and I just lay there on the bed. I didn't reach for my phone and try and fill that space. Yeah. I just lay there in the bed staring at the ceiling. I just thought about shit for 10 minutes, and then she came back. And I thought, I fucking hadn't done that in years. I was so uncomfortable with just thinking with my own thoughts that I would always have a phone. I'd have to fill the space with something. And I just sat there and it blew my mind. It's like, what did I allow myself to become? Yeah, I'd love some of that. Just I'd love some of that. <laughs> fucking bananas. Mate, I did want to ask, can you take me through in some detail the last thing you cooked for yourself what did I t- so I'm like half vegan so what I've done is I, I'm I'm vegan for the planet but not necessarily for animals I'm not there yet that's I'm the, I'm the same that's how I came to it I came that way yeah, yeah so what I kind of do is is I have meat maybe two nights a week and then for five nights a week I, I'm vegan so today was a meat day so what I did well, today what did I have I had the first ever really proper authentic Mexican chili that I've ever made in terms of real Mexican food they use whole dried chilies all different types of chilies like like ancho chilies and chipotle chilies so I found a company online that were selling all these Mexican chilies and I bought them and today I had these because I didn't know what to do with Mexican chilies like they're very large and they're dry and I'm like, what the fuck do you do with this? But I went on YouTube and it turns out you, you rehydrate them in hot water. So I was rehydrating dried chilies and then boiling like tomatoes and onions and garlic, which I would never boil. But you, you blend these with the chili that you've rehydrated and it creates this sauce that you fry. And so I made a, a beef chili and, it, and it's authentic Mexican recipe. It's the first time I've ever done it. Really happy with it. Oh, dude. Um, <laughs> as someone, um, unfortunately, and I don't know if you have ever checked yourself, unfortunately, I'm also celiac. So I end up oh, okay. having to cook for myself quite a bit. And my wife, I'm very grateful. My wife's a great cook, but I, I fucking love cooking. And I love food. I fucking love cooking, man. It's it's meditative. It's, it's just brilliant. Yeah. It's another creative thing that I can do that I enjoy. I love it. I mean, it mainly comes from, like, I, I had so many years working as a musician, like, there's no money in music. So for about five or six years, I was trying to live on 50 euros a week. And wh- yeah. when you can actually cook properly, you, you can live on 50 euros a week and you can eat well. But if you've got 50 euros a week and you're going to takeaways, fuck that. Fuck that. But, uh, Last you two days. Yeah. So yeah. I, learned, I learned to cook from that. I learned, and I love cooking so much. I love it. I know you're a fan of what happens at the other end as, as we've just moved into a house. We've been living in an apartment for a long time. So we were doing it on a very small scale, but we've just moved into this house and uh, we are just starting to ramp up what happens at the other end of the cooking, which is the compost. And I know you're a fan of that. Yeah. Are you interested in getting cockroaches? Well, I, I'm more, I think more of the black soldier fly. Oh, so you've really been looking into it. Okay. Oh, my, my brother, my, my youngest brother, he's quite the horticultural nerd. His black soldier flies will take a fucking lamb bone apart in a couple wow. of days. 
It's amazing. And you guys, you, you've got the climate for it. He, here, it's uh, it's quite cold. So, like, the best thing in Ireland is is their Japanese hissing cockroaches, but you got to put a heat <sighs> pad on the side of the bin because it's too cold for them. But you guys are, uh-huh. that's great over there. I mean, it, it, to have flies that will eat a bone, it's amazing. How do you contain the cockroaches? How do you make them not go feral? Uh, they won't survive in Ireland. Ah. Y- you guys have that. Like, I know Australia has been fucking destroyed by invasive species, but... Ireland has a very particular cold climate, so animals tend not to flourish. We have an issue with a, a crayfish, which is like a little lobster with no claws, and some invasive plants, but it's not like what you guys have to deal with in Australia. Like fucking rabbits. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It kept people alive during the Depression here in, here in Sydney. but um... And then they got rabbit starvation. <laughs> when, um... You know about rabbit starvation? I'd love to. Tell rabbit me. star. I don't know. Was it exclusively Australia? But rabbit is a very high protein, very low fat, and in populations, I think it was Australia where people only subside on rabbit. They ended up kind of starving to death because the rabbit itself wasn't sufficient nutrients. They were lacking in, in vital nutrients. So there's a there's a unique thing uh, called rabbit starvation, which can kill people wow. who live exclusively on rabbit. Yeah. The, the idea of the Japanese hissing cockroaches, I'm I'm into, but I think they just go, you know what? It's fuck. There's a whole house full of food over there. I'm just gonna fuck off over there rather than sit here. Yeah, have you guys got cockroaches in Australia, dude? They are, they are as big as my thumb and they fly in through the window. Yeah, see, we don't yeah. have cockroaches. <laughs> what about those fucking toad frogs, man? Have you got them? Uh, not toad frogs. What are those? Cane toads. Cane toads. Yeah. Devastating. Devastating. Utterly devastating. Yeah. Have you got them? Have you got them in Sydney? Uh, they're not this far south yet because it's a bit too cold down here. But this, you know, in a couple of years, they probably will be as the, as the weather continues to change. They're fucking huge and they eat everything, don't they? Yeah. They decimated local frog population. And, and, and similarly, I spent a fair bit of the year in, in Fiji shooting a show over there where my wife is from. And um, they brought them over there as well with the same idea that these cro- frogs would kill the cane beetle. Oh, for fuck's sake. Some genius went, oh, cane beetles are decimating the cane things. We'll get this frog from Brazil. He likes beetles. Let's get him in there. Cane beetles a meter up the stalk. Frog can't get up there. Fucking game over. Frog's like, look at this. Warm tropical climate. There's water everywhere. And then that's it. Decimated frog populations. Large native animals eat them. They're poisonous. They kill everything. It's a massive issue. The thing with biodiversity, because I had a biodiversity expert on the podcast, it's like Jenga. You have all these different insects and frogs and animals in an ecosystem and he described it as Jenga in that they don't know which one do you take away and everything else falls. They don't know oh, which man. one that is. So one species, and it could be a fucking fly. If that fly goes, everything else goes. Yeah. Right now, I'm okay with the bee argument because that makes sense to most people and they understand it. What, what's the bee argument? Oh, that if we lose the bees, we lose the food. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people can grasp that. But if you try to say to someone, no, but we have to protect this particular kind of cicada... Because if we don't protect this kind of cicada, people go, fuck that, I'm building the freeway. Yeah. It's an insect, who cares? Yeah, my, my pal Kali, who's the biodiversity expert, his, his whole thing is is we need to get people to care about animals that are ugly because <laughs> the ugly ones are important. It's true. I mean, I, I, I'm seeing now, like, I, I've got koalas all over my feed and I normally yeah, don't, but because koalas are cute and when you see a koala yeah. being hurt, you care. But no one gives a fuck about the beetles. 
it's not only the Beatles mate, it's the people. They in the same day will walk past a homeless person yes. yet feed a stray cat. Yeah. We'll feed a stray cat. Yeah. Because the stray cat, we can empathize, it's simpler, emotionally safer mm-hmm. to empathize and connect with a stray cat's plight than a person who's clearly possibly mentally ill and hungry and starving and, and danger and peril. Similarly, it's the people from overseas didn't start texting me to ask if me and my family were okay until they saw the the animals on fire. Yeah. More than 30 people have died. Thousands of homes have gone. Millions of acres have burned. But it was the burned koala photo. Mm-hmm. That, and if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you, you know, you talk about your physical fitness, you talk about your mental fitness, you talk about approaching your mental health and your regime of mental health as you would a, me- a physical fitness yeah. program and that you were quite crippled with it when you were a younger man and, and because you – you know, voraciously stick to this and work at this, you can have the life that you have. I was just wondering if you could kind of talk a bit about what it is to have that attitude towards your own mental health and what it feels like once you start taking responsibility and bringing that locus of control internally. So I, the main things I use for my mental health regimen, I use mindfulness, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, transactional analysis. These are the things I use on a daily basis. And I speak about these things on the podcast too. And the reason I compare it to fitness is I want to let people know that it's easy for me to go into a shop and pick up a magazine about diet and weightlifting, okay? And it's easy for me to pick up that magazine, to read it, to feel healthy by reading it. But if I don't put that into action, I'm not going to make any physical changes. Mental health is the exact same. If you read about self-help, if you read about how to manage your emotions, how to develop your self-esteem so your self-esteem isn't dependent on other people's perception of you, unless you're fucking doing it, unless you're actively doing it every single day, you won't see a change in yourself. And some people say to me, are you cured of your depression and anxiety? I'm not. And it's, it's similar again to, I have asthma. I have asthma, but I don't live the life of an asthmatic because I completely manage my asthma and my physical health. So I don't have asthma, but I do. If I start smoking loads of cigarettes, if I don't exercise, if I was to move somewhere with a lot of pollution, then I have asthma again. So if I don't manage my mental health on a daily basis, then I will be someone who has severe anxiety and depression. And there's no such thing as being cured of it. I cope. Similarly, I go for runs three times a week. I go to the gym. I'm physically fit as a result. If I stop, I'll stop being physically fit. It's it's all systematic. It's all the same. I couldn't have said it better. I, I couldn't have said it better. Like this is the this is the brain I've got. And if I want to make sure that it works properly, this is the thing I have to do to take care of it. And I'm sure it's the same with your sobriety. Oh, yeah. It's the exact same shit. You know, you're sober at the moment, but if you decide to have a bottle of Jack Daniels next week, you're not sober anymore. (laughs) Mate, there's some kombucha that I have to fucking say, all right, don't let me leave the house. If I have just that tingle of fermentation is enough to flick all the switches back on. Yeah. Wow. Mate, you talk about, you know. What about like kimchi? Uh, I tend to steer away from that because it's made with prawns. So oh, okay, I, I, okay, uh, okay. That fermentation, it's the liquid bubbly fermentation feeling. Because k- kombucha know? is like, it's its not alcohol, but if you left it there long enough, it might be. 
Yeah, there's a tiny percentage. Like pre-alcohol. I describe it like, a, you know, if you have a kid with a peanut allergy, yes. you wouldn't give them anything with the slightest amount of peanut allergy because if they had even the tiniest bit of peanut, their body goes, fuck, and then yeah. throat closes over, they have, you know, whatever. Similarly, a physical change happens within me when I have even the tiniest amount of alcohol that changes how I feel about things, what I think is what right and wrong, what I think is a good idea or a bad yeah. idea, changes my personality, changes how much I feel is a good amount to drink next. And and yeah. once that happens, I cannot control it. Yeah. And so, therefore, the abstinence is the key for me there. There's no – something so significantly changes in my body when I put this stuff inside it. And I do not like that person at all. And I don't like the things that he went – you know, that I, I did when I was in that state. And how, how do you feel about – how does – so, aside from, we say, addiction issues, how does managing your mental health uh, factor into – like in order for you to abstain the way that you abstain, right? That requires a lot of strength, yeah. And it requires you to be approaching abstinence from a core position of "I'm feeling good." So, do you manage your mental health as as part of uh, staying away from beer? Oh, fucking absolutely! Yeah, yeah. Because I I got really sick. I ended up on two kinds of antipsychotics, and I wow. was having paranoid delusions, and it was fucking it was bad. And so. I know it just similarly as like I know that death or incarceration or, you know, everything that I've built will vanish if I have a drink. Yeah. I know that my life will end because I was experiencing quite significant suicidal ideation, both active and passive. Yeah. I know that is waiting if I don't take care of this now. So if I, as long as I take care of it today, I'm okay. There you go. If I let it slide for a couple of weeks and if I let it go, then I start reaching a, a velocity of which I can't then yeah. self-regulate. And so, and it happened a couple of months back, you know, I, I needed to get back on meds. I'd been off meds for 18 months. I needed to get back on meds because I was no longer able to self-regulate back out of these situations. Yeah. And now with the meds on board, I'm like a, a pro cyclist hitting the mountain stages in Tour de France. I've got this gear on, I'm, I'm, I'm on the gear <laughs> and I'm doing the best, hardest work of my life. Yeah. You you know, because you know, a little bit about my story is that my biggest trigger was climate change. Okay. All right. And I was terrified that I was the only person that knew about this. And, you know, I was seeing, seeing as if I'm looking at the laptop in front of me, seeing the seas obliterate the Venice Beach shoreline where I lived and I was seeing the bushfires engulf the mountains. And now I'm sitting in it. The air stings my eyes when I walk outside here in Sydney and I'm okay. You're coping. You're able to cope. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm willing to be with it yeah. as well. I think it's a big part of it's willing, being willing to be with it. And, and accepting as well, like, yeah. I understand, like, uh, yes, we do have control over climate change, but there's certain things you don't. Like, you don't have yeah. control over the wildfire right now. Nope. You have control over what steps you can make to improve the world, to try and halt what's happening yeah. and to improve your community and to educate people. But right now, there's a fucking bushfire and it's stinging your eyes and there's nothing you can do right now. So you got to sit with it and cope with it and go, this is the pain of human existence that I have to deal with today. And I will manage. There you go. I will be okay. I will be okay. Yeah. That's the big thing. Blind Boy, it's been fucking amazing having you on, mate. It's a real delight. There's not many guests I nerd out over or, or fanboy over, so I'll save it for the last 14 seconds. Thank you so, so, so much for making the time. You know, and similarly, like, I'll never see a room before I walk into it. I'll never know what it's like to not have heard your show and then dive in. And so now I'm so grateful that the people who are listening, who this might be the first time they've heard you, I'm like, it's like when you meet someone who has never seen The Wire. You're like, fuck, I wish I could go back and have never seen The Wire. I wish I could go back and have never seen The Wire and then start watching The Wire and going, holy shit. Have you seen The Juice? Have you watched The Juice? 
yet we've just had a baby so you know we're, we're just trying well listen now I get you get to be that part the juice is as good as the wire so you get to be that person ah uh, I mean I mean I mean three seasons it's fucking amazing I'm all over it you're the best ever blind boy thanks for your time man thank you Asher alright well the rain has stopped the air is full of that delicious kind of damp earth smell the trees all look a little greener birds are tweeting a bit more and it smells fantastic and that was Blind Boy goodness I hope you enjoyed that you can find his podcast where you found this one follow him on Twitter at Rubber Bandits and enjoy diving in diving into the deep world of art transactional analysis mind blowing stories about the origin of the swastika and a whole whole lot of talk about otters thank you so much there's a few people that helped me make this podcast happen today particularly the wonderful Jennifer Dollard and Jordan Lott who went to great lengths to help me and Blind Boy find a time together despite the fairly substantial time difference between here and Limerick. So I'm off. Uh, oh, lightning. Exciting times. I'm off. Um, there it is. That's thunder. Did you hear that? That's so cool. I'll see you on Wednesday for Dad Pod. Who's our guest on Dad Pod on Wednesday? Let me see if I can't recall. Who did we put on? It was really fun too. Oh, James Clement. Ah, it's a really good one. James Clement. Yeah, he's great. So James Clement's on Dad Pod on Wednesday. Friday, I'm back here for a check-in. So this week, whatever you do, just, just look after yourself. And remember, perhaps like when somebody asks you, are you okay? You know, you don't have to, you can lie and say yes, but then, you know, when you write down and do your journaling, and you should do your journaling because that's where the work gets done, you know, answer yourself honestly. Am I okay? Because they might have noticed something you're not aware of. And then you get a chance to check in with yourself and see if there's anything else going on. You might get the chance to stop a pattern that's been affecting your life that you didn't realize is there. Writing it down is very helpful. Why did I do that? That's a good thing to put at the top of the page, and then you just ask why five more times. You'll generally get to the bottom of it, but be prepared to challenge your own ego because your own ego might just get in the way. Sounds like it's time to feed the dogs. It's a bit wet out there, love. I think they'll be all right, though. They might be happy. All right. Better get on with it. See you Wednesday. Off for Dad Pod. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.